Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today I have a, a really special treat for you guys in my uh, Shroud Wars uh, series here. Um, a personal friend of Barry Schwartz is coming on, uh, Arif Khan. Hey, Arif. Hey, pleased to meet you. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm really excited to, to bring Arif on because um, obviously people are familiar with my Shroud Wars debates where I brought on various sides. I brought on skeptics, I brought on atheists and Christians and, and Jews. Uh, but this is going to be a first. This time I'm actually bringing on a Muslim to present sort of a Islamic perspective on the Shroud of Turin. Um, so yeah, I think I think that'll be very interesting for the audience there. Um, and obviously the first thing to do, I just want to turn it straight over to you as the guest to kind of introduce us as to who you are, uh, maybe give us a little bit about your own faith journey and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot for, uh, firstly, thanks for having me. And uh, I realize it is a little bit unusual having a, a, you know, a Muslim with an interest in the shroud. It's always sparks a good conversation. Um, you know, when I'm interested, when I'm involved in shroud discussions or events. So thanks for this opportunity. So a little bit about me. So I think the best place to start, you know, um, is probably, you know, I'm a regular person. <laughs> I'm a father of two based in the UK. Um, you know, I have a, a career and a professional life that is sadly less interesting than what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, but I have a passion and a background in research into the Shroud of Turin, but also more broadly, I would say Christian Islamic dialogue. I'm a Muslim who's been born in the UK. I've lived in the UK all my life. So very much, a, you know, a, been exposed to Christianity from a very early age, been to school here in the UK, have a lot of Christian friends. So it's always fascinated me in terms of that, the dialogue between Muslims and Christians. And, you know, what we're going to talk about a lot today is the response to the person of, you know, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. Um, so that's where my interest has always been. So then in terms of other things I've been involved in, I'm part of a magazine called The Review of Religions. That magazine has been running for over 100 years. Um, I'm the deputy editor for the Christianity section of that magazine. It's a comparative religious magazine. It is produced by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and then also there's a radio station called The Voice of Islam Radio, uh, which has been set up a few years ago in the UK. And I'm a, a co-host of a show called The Pathway to Peace. Uh, so those are some of the kind of formal things I do for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. But of course, I'm a, you know, I am a member, a practicing uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim as well. Awesome. Awesome. Um, all right, cool. Well, uh, with that said, I think the first thing to get into is to kind of like get an understanding of, you know, what is Islam in general? Um, and like, how does your particular sect within Islam compare or relate to Islam? What are some of the, the similarities and differences and that sort of thing? Sure, exactly. So what, what is Islam? Big question. I think the best way to look at Islam and the way Islam defines itself is a continuation of a faith tradition. It's a continuation. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is one in a line of messengers that goes on thousands of years. Um, so Islam, the Quran talks about there being over 100,000 prophets. They, the Quran says that there's not one people on the planet on, on earth who we've not sent a messenger to. So Islam should be seen as very much a continuation of previous traditions, faith traditions, in particular the Abrahamic faiths. So Judaism, Christianity and Islam are very deeply linked. Um, they have a lot of common heritage. There's so many more similarities than differences in those faiths. So Islam, I think the best way of viewing it is, and the best way of viewing Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the next in a line of messengers or prophets. Um, 
he did come with a law. He did come with a new book, religious uh, text or revelation, a new law. Um, but that law is, a, you know, is an evolution, we would say, of the previous teachings of other faiths. So I think that's the best way of looking at Islam overall, because it came after Christianity and Judaism. It's able to specifically talk about Muslims and Christians. The Holy Quran talks about uh, Muslims and, and, you know, sorry, Muslims, Christians and Jews. It talks about them in, in detail. It talks about them as uh, refers to Christians and Jews as the people of the book. Uh, along with Muslims, and, and they're given special privileges uh, as well. They, they're given a, they're in a specific category um, described as the people of the book. Um, and Muslims are taught that, you know, these Jews and Christians are those closest to you in your faith. They're very similar. Um, I think in the modern day, we emphasize the differences more than understand the similarities. There's a lot more similarities and differences. So that, I think, is the right context to view Islam um, as, as a faith tradition. It was basically... A, an evolution of previous religions and then the Ahmadiyya Muslim faith there's there's only really one one difference but it's it leads to multiple differences the real difference is the only difference is that uh, in the Islamic faith um, and, and other faiths as well there is a tradition of a a reformer or a messiah or a prophet coming towards the end of time um, the Christians have the view about uh, prophet Jesus peace be upon him returning in his second coming um, you know, the, the Hindus talk about the second coming of Krishna. Buddhists also believe that Buddha will return many times in different forms. And so there is these traditions about a, a you know, an, an imam or a prophet coming towards the end of time. In the Islamic tradition, there's two specific figures that are mentioned. One is mentioned that prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, will return. So that's an interesting similarity. Some may not know. Both Islam and Christianity believes that. But then also it talks about a figure called the Imam Mahdi or the guided one. And it describes different characteristics of the two people. The claim of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and it's a huge claim, is that the founder of their community, of our community, um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, um, he made the claim uh, in 1889, or he created the community in 1889, said God had told him that this was what he was to do. And, and specifically in 1891, he said through revelation, he'd been told that he was that Messiah. He was the fulfillment of these prophecies, uh, you know, about their coming someone towards the end of time to try and unite religion, to bring people closer to God as well. So on, on the basis of that revelation, he founded this community and he was clear that it was within the precepts of Islam. It's still we still very much believe we're Muslims, but we believe that that awaited Messiah or awaited reformer has come. And, and that's the claim of this community. And I, in the same breath, I want to say that claim has very led to very different responses. There are those that have embraced the community and there are literally organizations whose sole aim is to destroy the community. You know, so, you know, it's, it's seen as a heretical um, belief within Islam. Um, so, you know, we're very much used to being in a minority in terms of this belief, uh, but the community is growing into tens of millions. So, so that's the main difference between the Ahmadiyya Mr. community. The debate really is, has the figure of you know, the second coming of Jesus, the, the, the advent of this Imam Mahdi in Islamic tradition, has that been fulfilled in the person of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Guardian in India? Or you know, has, has that not? And that's really what polarizes the different responses. And that's what makes the, the community unique. The last thing I'll say just to introduce the community is after the founder passed away in 1908, since then, there's been a sequence of successors. So through an electoral college, uh, you know, there's been someone appointed, voted for, who is then the spokesperson, the leader of the community. And we give him the title of Caliph or Khalifa. So that's another unique aspect of our community is that they have one central leader. 
similar in ways to the Pope in the, in the Catholic tradition. Um, one central leader to kind of unite us, uh, which is something we don't see in other, other aspects in the Muslim world. Gotcha. Okay, so, so apart from that aspect of the return of the Messiah, um, yeah. you're like any other Muslim in terms of the, the five pillars or... Correct. Okay, all right. Awesome. Um, okay, so I guess kind of getting into this, obviously this is um, a Shroud Wars type deal, so I, I kind of want to focus in on your guys' belief on the death and resurrection of yeah. Jesus in general. You know, what what is your guys' view about that? Um, and then I, I know that you guys also have a, a belief about Jesus traveling to India. Yes. So yeah, do you want to kind of familiarize the audience with your guys' take on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I should have said in the intro as well, like the, the topic of Jesus in India has been fascinating to me. So the founder of the, the community who I mentioned earlier, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, he actually wrote a book entitled Jesus in India. Now, why did he write that? He concluded from the scripture in the Holy Quran that although an orthodox view, the orthodox view amongst many Muslims is that Prophet Jesus is still alive in some way. His conclusion was that based on the Quranic verses, for example, saying that all prophets have passed away, um, he, he was of the belief that Prophet Jesus had also died a natural death like anyone else, any other person. So then it was a case of well, what happened to him? Is there, is there evidence of any kind of tradition of a post-crucifixion life maybe of Jesus? Is there a tomb anywhere? So in doing that research, he then produced this book, uh, one of the last books he wrote actually before he died, um, and it was entitled Jesus in India. So the Ahmadiyya community have, have always had this belief around Prophet Jesus having a post-crucifixion life and traveling to India. I got really into this theory when I was at university. I've discovered now that's when you have time. <laughs> so even though my, you know, my thesis, my doctorate or my uh, postgraduate was all in computer science, I had time to study and read widely. And I think most of the books that I've read about the historical Jesus, Christian and New Testament scholarship and a lot of these topics, the Shroud as well, was during that time and I could really dig into it. I got involved um, in a website um, called the Tomb of Jesus website. And as part of that, I was interviewed for a documentary in 2008 by an American film producer called Paul David. So he created a documentary on the topic of you know, Jesus in India. Um, and, you know, as part of that, I was interviewed. I was interviewed for that. Um, it's available. You can find it online. There's a listing on IMDb. Um, what I found as part of that interview, there was, there was something I explained to him, and I don't think I would put it into words before, but I basically said to him that actually the events of the crucifixion and what happened at the crucifixion are literally, it's literally the one event, if you like, that really causes a divergence between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I'll explain why I think that is. Um, from, a, a Jew, from a Jewish point of view, there were many people who came along and claimed to be the Messiah. <clears throat> and basically a lot of them were put to death or died. Um, so from a, from a Jewish point of view, if Jesus had been arrested, apprehended, and then executed, um, that would be evidence that he was a failed Messiah. He wasn't a true Messiah. Um, and this was a way to say his claim had ended. He had made this claim, but he had, you know, he had, end, it had ended. If he was true, God would have found some way to save him. He would have been successful. But the fact that is, you know, that his life ended there is a sign of failure. The Christian viewpoint is, well, actually, you know, that, that was a key part of his mission. It was to come, die. And then also after that, we have the resurrection. So that, if you like, is the part that the Jews are essentially missing is that actually, no, he didn't die. Or maybe he did die and he was resurrected. 
and there was a glorious you know advent of what happened afterwards that is when he was successful he conquered death etc so that's one divergence the islamic viewpoint is really interesting because it there's different interpretations like so many things in life <laughs> comes down to how you interpret scripture so the quran talks about the crucifixion and it says that you know the it, it makes a list, it lists different claims uh, from the Jews at the time. And it says one claim is the Jews mentioned that, you know, um, we killed Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and, and in the Quran, it's God responds to them directly. The Quran is often written in the first person. God says, you know, they didn't kill him, nor did they crucify him. But it was made to appear that way. This is how it was made to appear. It was made to appear that way. Um, it, the, the Arabic word um, used there is basically... Um, means that there was a resemblance or semblance of of this was how it was made to look now there's two ways of interpreting that one viewpoint is well actually prophet jesus peace be upon him was never put on the cross in the first place it was made to appear like he was on the cross but maybe but maybe someone was put in his place and we don't even know who that someone is there's different theories um but the the Ahmadiyya muslim theology if you like um, which claims to you know, not be anything different, but a reinterpretation of the original scripture, um, is actually says slightly differently. It says, yes, you can, he was, Jesus, Prophet Jesus was placed on the cross, but he, he didn't die. It was made to appear that he had died, but actually he survived that crucifixion. So that's an equally valid interpretation of, of the, the same um, you know, Quranic verse, we would argue, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslims would take that viewpoint. So from that point of view, it's like, well, actually, now you've got a third interpretation. You've got the, the, the Jewish view of he was a failed Messiah, and that claim to being the Messiah ended with his death on the cross. You've got the Christian viewpoint around, actually, no, he came to die for our sins, and he did, and he was then resurrected, which shows that he was more than a human. And then you've got the Islamic interpretation, which varies, but one interpretation, the one I would favor is actually, you know, there was a plot to put him to death to, to basically end his mission, but God miraculously saved him. Um, from that death and he was able to survive he was able to recover and then continue on his mission you know after the crucifixion so it's amazing how the crucifixion has such a crucial part you know the crucifixion and whether there was a resurrection you know the first thing i wanted to say about that is that is really the crux of where these three kind of major abrahamic faiths you know where they where they vary yeah yeah it's fascinating um what one thing it, it's not on my list of questions but um one thing just to follow up are, are you familiar with, um, there's an interpretation in, within Islam by Gabriel Said Reynolds, I think he, he wrote a paper, um, and he actually affirmed, he tries to say that, actually, you can interpret that Quranic verse as saying, yeah, Jesus did die, but it's just denying that the Jews killed right. him, which is the Rome. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I guess, how would you, would you say, is there any room within Islam to affirm that maybe Jesus did die, or do you think you know, an interpretation like that is just out of bounds within Islam. Ultimately, he did die. Ultimately, he did die. And there's, there's, it talks about the death of Jesus in the Quran as well. So there's a, there's a extract in the Quran where God says, imagine in the future. It talks about a hypothetical situation in the future. And this is more around, which I'm sure we'll get into, the claim of Jesus. What was his status? So it talks about, think about the time when Jesus is brought in front of God and God will say to him, Jesus, did you tell people to worship you and your mother? you know, as gods almost. And he would say, and the Quran says, he, Jesus will respond by saying, you know, holy are you, God. I would not do anything that you had, I wouldn't say anything unless you told me to say, I wouldn't have said these things. And it, then it goes on to say, and since you've caused me to, since I've died, 
you've been a watcher over the people. I don't know what's happened since then. So the Quran does support the, the idea of Jesus having died. I think where it would, where there isn't room in the Islamic interpretation is a, a sort of a death and resurrection and a physically, Jesus physically being alive again on the earth, having previously died, that is, that is where it would draw the line. The Quran does talk about that once there is a barrier between life and death, and once you've crossed that barrier, you can't come back. Um, so that's where I think the difference is. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, all right, well, so I think your view, as you were saying, is kind of this uh, swoon theory or yeah. a naturalistic version of the swoon theory. Um, so obviously that's going to be highly controversial for, for my, a lot of, in my audience and that and even for myself as well. So yeah. I want to kind of ask you, obviously, a, a natural comeback that a lot of scholars will come, come back on, you know, people like Joseph Bergeron or Mike Lacona, those type of, of Christian apologists and that sort of thing. And they'll say, well, look, a swoon theory, it's just a priori, uh, very implausible to happen from a medical perspective. Um, you know, there's various wounds that Jesus is depicted yeah. on. And from a medical perspective, it's very improbable that someone would survive those types of wounds. And yeah, I want to hear you kind of give a, a yeah, Absolutely. And I wanted to start off by saying as well, I think, you know, I... I'm a I'm a seeker of the truth, and you know as, as much as anyone else as well. So, um, whenever whatever I say, I'm expressing you know my opinion, the views of the Ahmadiyya community. But you know we mm. may all be wrong. <laughs> Who knows what really the truth is? So, um, I, I you know I want to start off by that, and I want to also say that you know I realize that when you have a someone like Jesus, who's who people have such a deep link with, anyone speaking about them or questioning things, it can become a bit emotive. So. I, you know, I approach the subject with absolute respect for the Christian tradition as well. Um, and, you know, it's hard to understand the exact facts of what happened 2000 years ago. But let's let's talk about the evidence that kind of, you know, I, I draw on and that others with this viewpoint kind of draw on. So the first is the nature of crucifixion. Now, the reason that a lot of us are we don't have a good knowledge of what crucifixion normally looked like is because the only crucifixion we've heard about is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peace be upon him. So that's very common. Traditionally, crucifixion was a very much a long drawn out punishment. It wasn't supposed if you needed to um, just execute someone quickly, like the Romans had ways of doing that. Crucifixion was was designed to be to last a long time. And it was designed for the person to be shown you know, in public as a way to you know, warn others that, you know, if this is what you do, if you try to um, question the authority or challenge the authority of the Romans, this is what will happen to you. It was supposed to be something that would last many days. I've heard researchers talk about, you know, you know, 10 days potentially or longer with people dying due to starvation and thirst and or maybe being attacked by wild animals. So crucifixion generally did last a lot longer than, than we may think, because often we think about this idea of just, you know, we only really talk about Jesus' crucifixion in reality. The other thing in terms of duration and, and whether it's possible to survive, well, the Jewish historian Josephus talks about a crucifixion in the first century as well. He talks about um, one of his stories. He says that he was returning from another village from, I think it was the village of Tokoa. And Josephus says that he returns and he saw three people on, on you know, he saw some people on crosses and one of them he recognized as, as a friend of his. And I'm not saying he's talking about Jesus, by the way, <laughs> which I got asked once when I shared this story. So he saw people on the cross and he no recognized one of them and he asked for that person to be taken down. And that person was removed from the cross and they were able to, um, you know, they were able to survive that. Mm -hmm. um, I think in, 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 I believe it's Indonesia, it might be another country in Asia. There's people who to this day um, reenact the crucifixion in ways. They actually are nailed to crosses. They are put up on a cross 
during the Easter days as a form of, you know, reverence and remembrance about what uh, Jesus was put through. And, you know, they're, they're, they're nailed through the palms and the feet and, and they are then taken down afterwards and they do use real nails with them as well. So we have examples of crucifixion and we have, you know, um, we can see and we can try and study what are the aspects of crucifixion, how, what, what are the types of injuries that would have been sustained and how life-threatening are they? I think another thing with the crucifixion of Jesus is that the duration, like I said earlier, duration tended to be long, but with Jesus, if we think about the events, it was only for a few hours and that was because the Sabbath was coming. <clears throat> so we see this in the New Testament, the accounts talk about, look, the Sabbath is coming, things need to be speeded up. Um, and I think one small detail, which is absolutely crucial, <laughs> is, is what happened to the, the two thieves we are told about who were either side of Jesus. So first of all, we're told that they was, you know, that they were still alive, first of all. So actually, why would the, the two thieves have died? Uh, sorry, have still been alive, but Jesus died, you know, well, had already died. That's one question. It could be because of the scourging and the night before he was up praying to be saved as well. So it could be those aspects. But there's three there. One, you know, Jesus has already bowed his head down. Now, for the thieves, because they're still alive, we read in the New Testament that their legs were broken to hasten about, hasten death. Now, honestly, if Jesus's legs were also broken, then I think that's the end of the story. Like he wouldn't have been able to breathe. He was died through asphyxiation fairly quickly, if unable to support his own weight. But his crucially, his legs were not broken. Um, so what we do know is that his head had bowed down. We know that a few hours before that, or we're told in the New Testament that, you know, he cried out before there was a cry of anguish before he bowed his head mm -hmm. we also know that some kind of liquid was given to him as well on a sponge we're told that he was given some kind of substance uh, and after that he cried out he bowed his head he said it's finished um thieves legs were broken they were brought down jesus's legs were crucially not broken but then we get to this this spear wound in the side and there's different interpretations of that as well so there's one german theologian um, called Holger Kirsten, who, who's written a few books on the Shroud, but also on the Jesus in India topic, who, who delved into that account of the spear. Now, often we think that the spear was almost as a way to, um, you know, finish him off, on want of a better phrase, make sure he was dead. But if they were trying to kill him and, and you know, spear him, it, it would have been easier to do that from the front, or it would have been, you know, they, they could have broken his legs if they were unclear about whether, you know, they thought he may have been dead. Holger Kirsten's interpretation is that that spear thrust in the side was to, a way to check if he was still alive. Was there any movement? If, you know, was there, the body still alive, like prodding a body? Now, Holger Kirsten goes into the Greek word used, and he suggests that that Greek word doesn't have a, I think it's Nicene is the word. It doesn't have a connotation of much force and deep penetration into the body. It's more of a prod with a spear to see if there's a response from the body, you know, did the person move or not? And, and Jesus didn't respond to that. Um, now, what we do know, what we do hear is that from that gushed forth or flowed forth blood and water. Um, and so those who believe that Jesus was still alive would say the fact that blood flowed out, um, you know, or gushed out was a sign of an active heart. Um, the water could, could have been release of liquid from the, the, the lungs as well. So in a traumatic experience lung ca lungs can fill with a type of water it's called pleurisy so we could have elements of you know pleural water lung water kind of flowing out mm -hmm. and that's what the blood and water could have represented now i know that every single thing i've just said <laughs> there will be a counter argument to it that will literally say the blood and water prove that there was death because it was the separation of blood and serum you know the 
also yeah you know so that's been argued as a sign of, of, of life but also as a sign of death as well so i know it's hotly debated as we said and there's multiple interpretations um but some you know i would say that that is a sign that jesus was was still alive um, or there is a possibility he was still alive um and then then he was taken down and and joseph of arimathea and nicodemus to me are quite mysterious characters we don't really know too much about who they were or you know or their backgrounds we know that at that crucial time they were able to get the body of jesus and they were able to put it into a private tomb that, that, that you know nicodemus i believe was the owner and it was very close to golgotha very close to where the crucifixion took place so they had the body they took it to the tomb and then actually we don't from a gospel account we don't really know what happened after that you know we know that they were that they tended to the body it talks about using aloe and myrrh um but then after that, you know, what do we know about the, what happened in the tomb? There is a bit of a, it is shrouded in mystery. And it's only that, you know, when we get the story of the Marys trying to go and anoint the body or to visit the tomb, that we hear that, you know, the, ro the rock was rolled away. And, and then there's a, these, inter these meetings with a risen, uh, risen Jesus. So, yes, that could be interpreted as, you know, he did die and something miraculous happened. But also there is a narrative and it's not just, you know, it's not just members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who have written about this throughout, I'd say the last 200 years, there's been different people who have responded and talked about the idea of this, of, of you know, Prophet Jesus having swooned. Um, and also, if you just think about in the modern day, right, we have stories of near death experiences. We have stories of people who have looked like they've completely died, but then do revive or come back in some way. And, and so in you know 2000 years ago when we didn't have the medical equipment you know, and that happens today with modern medical equipment 2000 years ago when we didn't have that uh, kind of equipment you know is there a possibility that he was still alive um and and in believing that i'm not saying the resurrection was hoaxed in some way or was faked in any way i think it would still be genuine mm -hmm. um i just think it can still have happened within the realms of modern day uh, our understanding of biology and it wouldn't have required a complete death it would have required death-like symptoms maybe jesus sunk into a coma but he was revived and was able to then carry on uh, after the crucifixion and continue continue his mission gotcha okay um okay so just to confirm a couple of things that was a sure. great answer very thorough you, you covered a lot of my follow-ups um so so one thing so you, you would take the view that in general people die on crucifixion through asphyxiation you, you kind of take that's how they die type thing Okay, um, cool. And that's why in Jesus' case, it should take more of a longer time type deal. Um, one, one little probing thing is with that chest wound. Um, because I, I do think you're right. It, it is possible that people could survive crucifixion. Um, there's obviously the issue of scourging. How would that have played a yep. role? But with the chest wound, you're, you were kind of saying it's like a little probe but then wouldn't the, like you're admitting there's also like blood and water, which indicates kind of a, a more deeper penetration. So that, yeah. uh, like, how do you kind of make sense of that? That's the only- Yeah, sure. Yeah. So first I would say I'm not a medical, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical person. So I'm relying on what others have said. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, you will get, you will get medical doctors of a Christian persuasion arguing one way and you will get other doctors of a different persuasion arguing it differently. Um, but I've heard, medical explanations for how they've actually gone even to the other extreme i've heard one medical explanation saying actually that wound in the chest would actually have helped him live because if liquid was building up in his lungs um through you know plur through plur pleurisy which is when liquid does build up which can happen through a traumatic experience 
you know, one, one doctor was telling me, he goes, look, in A&E, when someone comes in with this kind of thing, the first thing we do is we drain, we drain the lung. Mm. And he was like, I've done that. He's like, I've done that procedure many times. We puncture on the side and we remove the liquid to help avoid them basically suffocating in a way. So um, it, it's, it's hard to prove for us, really difficult for us to get into it. All I can really say is that I've seen it argued multiple ways. So I've seen those who've said that actual side wound may have actually helped relieve liquid that was building up in the lung and might actually have been something that helped him survive he was certainly injured deeply like you know that would have been he bled we'll get onto the shroud i know but the shroud is soaked in blood so it's a traumatic experience um but i've heard doctors say that when you're nailed on the cruise on the cross for example the you know the points of uh, where you are nailed and suspended they're not you're not knocking out any major blood vessels in the body um so i would say it's it's still plausible that that you know you could have had that and be and be tortured in the other ways and still have survived with the right medical help with the right uh, you know herbs and other balms being applied to you but there would be some lasting side effects right he would still have wounds he would still be in pain mm-hmm. uh, and what i find really interesting is if you read the new testament accounts and you sort of and i know it's hard to do this if you try and strip away some of the religious narrative and the dogma around jesus after around prophet jesus and what happened after the crucifixion the first time he's recognized uh by by mary magdalene i believe it is many marys might i think it's mary magdalene yeah um when she recognizes who he is and she he goes to she goes to embrace him he says please don't touch me now i know there's a christian interpretation to say well it's a resurrected body he's in a special state but actually if he was just in pain from what he's been through that inter- that response of his also makes sense to me uh, and, you know, when he does meet the disciples afterwards, they're able to, you know, doubting Thomas is able to put his hands mm-hmm. inside the wounds and see those wounds. So I think the wounds are very much real. They would have affected him. It would have taken him a while to recover. He needed attention. And I think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the ones that provided that assistance and help. Um, but I think over that period of days, he, they were able to nurse him back to life uh, and, uh, you know, sort of, or help him recover from his wounds, I should say. Uh, and he was able to then be well enough to present himself to his disciples and and, and meet them uh, a few times afterwards as well. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, cool. Um, the other follow-up, the other thing that's going to be shocking to, to a lot of listeners and stuff is this notion that Jesus went to India. Um, yes. As Christians, we're like, what? Um, so uh, I want to probe on that. It, like, is there any historical evidence for or against that? Like, um, what's yeah. the evidence for this, basically? So let's start with the crucifixion. Let's start with what happened immediately after the crucifixion to try and work out you know, what do we, what happened next, really? So the way, so again, there's different, I understand there's a difference of opinion. The way, if, if I look at the post-crucifixion um, sightings of Jesus, first of all, let me deal with that. I mean, I don't, I think there is no doubt that he was alive and seen by his followers after the after the crucifixion event i don't believe that the christian faith will had been would have had such an effect on people it wouldn't have it would have lasted thousands of years if that resurrection was only something metaphorical or if if those post crucifixion sightings were just metaphorical or they were just dreams or visions mm. i don't feel christianity would have been able to be born and has survived as long as it is so i believe those people those disciples, they saw Jesus again physically to the point where they were absolutely clear who he was and that it wasn't an apparition. And partly that's because Jesus himself, I believe, as the New Testament says, literally said, come and touch my hands and, and see that I'm real. This is, I'm not a ghost. I am actually real. I think 
if you look at his behavior afterwards, though, he he, meet, he meets with his disciples in secret. Even when he meets them, he says, look, let's let's not talk here. Let's meet further away. Um, you know, he's almost he's in hiding in a way. He's keeping a low profile. He's arranging meetings with them in in specific locations. He's not, for example, going back out to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and saying, you tried, you know, look at me. I'm you know, I've resurrected and you know, your efforts have failed. And this is proof that I am, you know, the Messiah or I am son of God or beyond that. He doesn't do that. He actually doesn't seem to do that. And people in the post-crucifixion sightings, you also hear people not recognizing him originally as well. Mm-hmm. So again, different interpretations. One interpretation would be he's, he's basically traveling, you know, incognito. He's trying to keep a low profile. Maybe he's even disguised in some ways in terms of, you know, the way he's dressed or appearing. Some, at one point he's mistaken for a gardener is it sounds consistent with again if we try and remove some of the dogma which is so hard to do i know mm-hmm. if you look at it in almost everyday terms and the fact that he's on the move it seems consistent with him trying to get get away from that area trying to escape from the area saying look they tried to kill me i managed to survive now i need to move on and if you look at the roman empire you, you know where where palestine was and is it was on the very eastern edge of the Roman Empire. So if he's trying to get out of the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, you know, he's on the edge anyway. He doesn't have to travel too far. He is able to do that. And his travel direction would be to the east. Now, if we think about, you know, uh, St. Paul meeting Jesus. Now, let's imagine as well, what if that wasn't a vision? What if he physically did meet him on the road to Damascus? So you start to plot out the different points where we're hearing these post-crucifixion sightings. There is a general trend, I would say, moving towards the east. Um, so that's one interesting observation. And the second thing to talk about is, is what was the mission of Jesus? Now, he says in the, in the New Testament, and again, I can maybe caveat everything with I'm saying, going, I know there's different viewpoints. One interpretation is he talks about the lost tribes of Israel or the tribes of Israel or the you know, the lost tribes, the sheep, lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. Mm-hmm. They said that don't I've been sent. I've only been sent unto the lost tribes, the, the sheep of the house of Israel. Now, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And at the time he was uh, at Jesus's time, only two of them remained in Palestine because the others had been scattered. Um, the Assyrians, I think it was in the 8th century B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came and you know the israelites were scattered a a long distance we don't really know where they went but there are traditions and again this is debated and it's hard to unpick the history there are people and there are traditions and there are communities that have claimed to be descendants of those lost tribes um some of them are in i've gone as far as maybe even china but there are definitely those that are in the east in the in kashmir afghanistan modern day sort of uh, india pakistan those kind of areas um iraq iran those kind of areas have people um, who have often claimed that they are descendants of these tribes. Um, one of my co-workers at the, uh, the Review of Religions, um, is, she's a medical doctor, and she did some, um, she wrote an article recently around genetic similarities between um, some of the tribes or people who claim to be descendants of the Jewish tribes in, in India, uh, along with um, you know, Jews that are, are living in, in Israel at the moment. So there are studies to kind of go, actually, there's some interesting parallels between these groups. Yes, they've got their traditions, they've got their, their own stories about their lineage, but also there's some specific medical things as well that seem to suggest that they may be, um, you know, descendants of those lost tribes in those far off places. So if somehow Jesus was aware of this, um, you know, and if he had stated his mission was to preach to the lost tribes, 
it, that may have been what he did afterwards. He may have thought, okay, I've, I've, like, I've preached to these tribes. I've been rejected by my people here. I now need to go on and continue preaching to the others who have not heard my voice. And they are in these other far off lands. So he would have traveled on to then have done that. Um, in, in these in, in sort of different historical records, and these get quite sketchy because it's hard to, to, to kind of, you know, put this story together. I, I feel like even now we have an outline, we have a few hints that this may have happened, but we're far from proving that Jesus went to India or that he traveled here. But there are historical texts from areas and there are communities who have talked about traditions of a, a prophet teaching a message of peace. Um, one Hindu tradition, there's a book in the Hindu tradition called the Bahavishya Mahapurana. It talks about a, a meeting between a king and a saintly figure in India, uh, where that saintly figure was dressed in white. He claimed to be born of a virgin. He said that he taught a religion of peace, um, that he had been exiled from his, from where, from his homeland, and that he had traveled here to preach here instead. And he, he, he went on to preach to the, to the king, explaining that his message was that of love. So you can, there's hints. There's, it's almost, you know, we're teased with certain sources in different areas that talk about a figure that seems to match the, the figure of uh, prophet Jesus. Now, could it have been a disciple of Jesus? Could it be, you know, there are, you know, there are other explanations for who was this saintly figure. Um, but the person seems to have this claim to be Jesus uh, taught in parables as well. And their references and their points along this possible route to India um, in different regions, such as Taxila in modern day Pakistan. There's a tribe in Afghanistan who claimed that their, their lineage is actually from um, you know, from Jesus himself. So Jesus may have had children as well. So there's these traditions and there's these legends. And I guess what makes this topic fascinating for me and others is that, you know, we're still exploring these areas, right? There's, there's very few people that are looking for a post-crucifixion life of Jesus, first of all, because the orthodox teaching in Christianity and Islam is that, you know, he ascended to heaven. So there's very few looking for it anyway. Um, but those of us that are, you know, we find we find little bits of information in different places. And the last 20 or 30 years, I would say there's been tens of books. There's been at least three or four sort of major documentaries as well that have tried to uncover this story. One by the Discovery Channel, one by the BBC in the, U in the UK, um, and one I was involved in by Paul Davies, an independent filmmaker, trying to piece together that tradition. So there are hints and there's small elements and there are texts that talk about this. Um, and there's also a physical tomb. So there is a tomb in Kashmir, um, which has a very interesting claim. So it's got two figures in there. One is a Muslim, an Islamic Muslim saint. And the other is a figure known as Yus Asaf is, is the name of this person. And he's a very, you know, who he is, is, is very controversial. Um, even the Muslims today. So the orthodox position of Islam is that Jesus is in the heavens and will return later. So even today, you know, within Islam, you won't find many Muslims that will believe in this tomb. The, the owners of the tomb right now are Muslim caretakers that, that are basically looking after it. And it's really interesting for me to hear what their thoughts are on the tomb. So when it's told to them, you know, who is in this tomb? You know, is it Jesus? They'll firstly deny it. They'll be like, no, 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 this is not Jesus. Then they'll start saying, oh, no, it, it is a prophet. It's someone, it, it, the person in this tomb is a prince prophet. He came from another land. He traveled, some mentioned he came from Egypt, you know, he traveled to this area and, you know, he's buried here, um, but, you know, he's one of the Muslim prophets. Now, that doesn't fit correctly with Islamic theology. There is no concept really of other Muslim prophets. You know, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is believed by Muslims to be the final 
you know, profit. That's one reason they're so against the Ahmadiyya claim, for example. So the position of modern day owners of that tomb is very is confused as well, um, because they've got a conflict in their own mind, because for, as far as they're concerned, Prophet Jesus is in the heavens. But also they do talk about this tradition of this prophet buried in this tomb. And they, they talk of a story of him, you know, escaping some kind of persecution in other a land and moving here, you know, to to Kashmir. Um, one interesting aspect of that tomb is the direction of it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the direction of the tomb is, is, is basically the direction in which the Jews bury their, bury their dead as well. It's a specific direction and east, I believe it's east-west facing, um, whereas the Islamic tradition is, is to bury them in a different direction, north-south facing. So we have a Jewish prophet born uh, who's buried in there, um, who traditions locally say that he claimed to be Yus Asaf, and other traditions have said that he claimed to be the same prophet from Israel, prophet Jesus. So this is the kind of the, the pieces of the jigsaw that have been put together. It still needs more research, more evidence, more conclusive evidence, more evidence that can be dated further back. I don't think it's a proven case completely, um, but it's a fascinating topic. And there's people who have written about this topic from many different faith traditions. Uh, Buddhists, you have Holger Kirsten, who's a German theologian as well. Um, you have those who are maybe even of no faith particular, or even of a Christian uh, background. Suzanne Olson is an example of that, who's also spoken about this tomb. So I'm not going to say that it's proven completely. I'd say this is one theory. I would say from a faith point of view, from an Ahmadiyya Muslim theology point of view, we do firmly believe that Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, has died a natural death. He, has, he is dead and buried somewhere on earth. And that tomb is, is you know, the theory put forward now is the best possibility we can, uh, we can put out there. I know how jarring it is when people first hear this theory. I know how outlandish and crazy it sounds. <laughs> but when you start to piece together the bits of information, you can see maybe it's not as outlandish as it sounds. The last thing I'll say about travel is, you know, the, the old spice route or the silk route actually connected, um, you know, Palestine to, the, to China, essentially. So travel between those parts of the world um, was more frequent than we may realize and was more well-established than we might realize just because there was a spice route there anyway where there was more you know, interconnection than we think. So just from a physical view, how would you travel that far? It was a journey that was, you know, was done by many people from a trade point of view. Um, so those are kind of the pieces of the puzzle that have been put together to try and you know, argue this as a, as a thesis. Um, it's still being researched right now. Like I said, there's articles and books coming out all the time. And I feel... I hope more will be done because I think, you know, there's when the bigger the claim that someone makes, the higher, you know, the uh, the bar needs to be in terms of the evidence to prove it. So I think there's still a lot of, you know, evidence that needs to be presented. But then I would say, you know, belief of a physical ascension to the heaven is, you know, that's a huge claim as well. You know, that's hard to prove as well. Um, and so, you know, this, that's kind of how we've got kind of got to this theory. And this is how, you know, for me personally as well, I, I find that more realistic than, a, than an ascension. So that's that's interesting that you said um, theologians from different backgrounds have studied the the tomb, for example. And yeah, um, out of curiosity, do you know if uh, secular archaeologists have studied it? Um, I'm sort of curious. Yeah. Have they dated uh, the tomb as well as these? Like, when do these texts date from? Exactly. <clears throat> so a lot of the texts are met are more like medieval in their timing. So that's one. Yeah. Um, one weakness in the theory, right? We don't have, we have the Bahavishya Mahapurana, which claims to have a, a dating of say 120 AD, but then we also know over time, it's been 
there have been changes in versions have changed. There's been manipulation to that text. So it's hard to say that we have authentic sources dating way back. A lot of the traditions that people rely on around uh, who Yus Asaf was are 17th century, 16th century. They're not ancient. Um, so it's hard. It's complicated to try and put together a, a really solid timeline of that. In terms of your question about, you know, um, who does this research? And I think we have the same challenge with the Shroud. It's like those who are of less of a religious um, background, they're less inclined to do this. Like if you were to look at, you know, even Shroud researchers, right, they'll nearly always be coming at it from a specific angle. Um, we're so lucky and blessed to have Barry Schwartz, you know, who I've had a, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to get to know because he is genuinely objective because he'll say, he says, you know, I come from a Jewish background. I'm not trying to prove something from this. So what I, but if you look at the other researchers who have written about the book, uh, written about a uh, written book, sorry, about the topics of a post-crucifixion life, but all of Jesus and also the shroud, it tends to be those who are, have a specific agenda. And let me be honest, I count myself in that category, right? If I wasn't an Ahmadiyya Muslim, uh, who was brought up with this tradition for whom this is a really key part of my faith you know, why would i be that interested in digging into this topic so it's a nature of the the problem really that these these topics are theological in in their essence and genuinely it attracts people from a theological background and then when someone who's who's not theological you know when you ask them like i've been involved in proposals for films documentaries etc on these topics like why would someone want to get involved in something this controversial? Sometimes they will. You have the exceptions, but often it's like, well, you know, I don't want to get involved in something that is going to be so emotive and that causes so much controversy. Um, you will get some people who will, and they'll be comfortable with that. But then it's, you know, it's really hard to attract people. So I also would like what you just said, you know, a humanist, maybe an atheist, someone of no faith whatsoever, who has no emotional connection or theological connection to the shroud and to the tomb in, in Kashmir to actually go in and date them. I think the challenge is, and this is, I don't know what to think about this. Maybe this is just the way life is, but it's so frustrating that today in 2022, we have this alleged tomb in Kashmir and we have this relic, you know, in the shroud of Turin, access to both of those for very different reasons, but access is so complex on both accounts. Mm. Doing additional tests is so difficult. In Kashmir, it's more political it's more about you know is it a safe part of the world to send a, a crew to an you know who would want to travel there it's it's in an unsafe area unfortunately mm. but then also because the Ahmadiyya community who is seen as heretical because they have talked about this tomb you know those who own the tomb and other orthodox muslims are so against any research in there around this tomb they don't want anyone coming and even thinking that this is the tomb of jesus they have a bold a sign placed on top of the tomb now uh, in front of the building clearly saying the quran and the bible agree that jesus in, is in heaven there's no reason this tomb is the tomb of jesus that's something that's been put in the last sort of 10 years um so the, there are so many barriers of uh, sadly annoyingly frustratingly yeah <laughs> so many barriers to go in and do this research but you know, I, I would love for someone to do that. And I don't want that to be an Ahmadiyya Muslim. I, I want that to be someone who can really be objective and can kind of do it in a way where, you know, they can kind of give some real credibility to the whole process, not just the outcome, but the process to kind of show that it was done in an objective way. I hope that day will come, but it's, you know, I'm as frustrated around the tomb as I am around the lack of additional tests on the shroud as well. You know, from that point of view, it's it sadly, it's just really difficult at the moment to, uh, test either either artifact gotcha yeah no that makes sense and i'm 100 with you i share that 
frustration when it comes to I, I want to investigate everything truth is sure. all truth is god's truth right so yeah um i'm with you on that and uh all right not a problem what one um last follow-up on this and it's something you kind of hinted at in your answer on this uh jesus traveling to india issue um you mentioned well maybe it's a disciple and there's some people who say well the apostle thomas traveled to india exactly uh yeah i just wanted to throw it open to you like uh what what are your thoughts on traveling to india and do you think there maybe there could be a conflation based on the evidence or yeah like what's Yeah, it's a really good question. It's even more interesting when some people have said that the gospel, the disciple Thomas was, some have regarded, referred to him as almost, I think he was referred to as the twin, not literal twin, but you know, there's even a, there's even elements in the New Testament that say they look like each other. <laughs> so I do believe Thomas did travel to India and actually that adds credence or adds credibility to the, the argument about travel like that did occur you know, in the ancient world. And, you know, it's not that we had to wait until we had airplanes before we could do that kind of travel. So I do believe Thomas went to India. Um, and I think that gives support to the plausibility of Jesus having traveled as well. Now, so the real question is that what makes it special? What can we tie from that tomb to Jesus specifically? So one would be the claim that he was, that he said that he was a prophet traveling from another land. So one would be that, which again is through tradition, oral traditions, written documents, but not dating back thousands of years, maybe a few hundred years, but they do exist. Um, And then the other would be, again, we're teased with this. So next to the tomb, it's enclosed with a glass building. There's a sarcophagus at ground level. The tombs are underground. At ground level, um, in and around the tomb, and we don't know the date of this. We don't know when this was placed near the tomb, but there are some carved footprints. There's some feet carvings that are placed right next to the tomb. Um, and the BBC Four documentary called Did Jesus Die does a really good job of um, trying to of showing those feet carvings and then and showing the marks on the feet, which I'll get into and explaining why this may be a link to Jesus. Um, not, not to interrupt, but are, sure, are these uh, documentaries? Because I'd like to post them on my blog. For oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'll okay? definitely send them to you. There are, they are online so we can, you can get a hold of them and they're really worth watching as well. I, I had the fortune to meet so the, the, the BBC Four one was done by a, a gentleman called Richard Denton. Mm-hmm. I, I was lucky enough not just meet him, but a couple of times that me and him went to, a, uh, we had um, Q&A panels at two different universities in London. <clears throat> and what we would do is we would play his documentary um, in a university, invite anyone who was interested around the, you know, this documentary and the question of did Jesus die on the cross? Um, and then afterwards, we had a question and answer session as well with the audiences. So I got to do that twice with him. A really interesting guy. Um, so yeah, I'll absolutely share those, those links with you. Um, these footprints, and again, I wish there was a way to date them. Um, they're they're impressions, they're carvings made in stone. Now feet carvings of footprints are really common in India. Um, you know, if you think about Buddhist tradition, there's often, you know, these carvings, feet carvings are seen a lot of the time, but there's something unusual about these feet carvings. And that is that on the front of the feet, um, and the video does a good job of showing this there's two marks or what appears to be marks or scars or elevated areas towards the feet, towards the end of the toes of the person. Now on the left foot and the right foot, and these are stone carvings that have been made by someone, left foot and the right foot have this kind of scar, but they're not in the same position. On one foot, they're higher up the foot than on the other one. Now what researchers have said, and to be honest, it's a bit of a leap, but what they've said is that actually, if those were crucifixion scars, and if the person who was creating that 
that stone sculpture of the feet was trying to indicate, you know, maybe they were trying to indicate that there's something unusual about this person. And, you know, maybe that was a way to preserve who that person was. The idea is that that person, that person creating this sculpture would have, you know, carved these feet and placed these marks on the feet. And they say that the feet, the carvings, the scars on the top of the feet do not match on the left and the right, but they would align if one foot was placed on the other. And on the BBC Four documentary, they do a great job in the culmination of the documentary. I don't want to spoil it for people, but they basically do a 3D reconstruction to say, look, there's two scars, different positions in the feet. They wouldn't align, but if one foot was placed on top of the other and something like a nail was put through both feet, a single nail, then the scars would align. Now, there's a lot of debate about how Jesus was placed on the cross. Was he nailed through the feet? Was it through the heels, et cetera? So this is all very speculative and controversial. But on that documentary, what they speculate and they say is that, look, that whoever created this carving was trying to demonstrate, show something unique, a specific characteristic about the person in that tomb. Um, and these are the feet carvings and these marks on there are consistent with someone who survived a crucifixion. So if we then say it's a prophet traveled from Egypt, he claimed to be a prophet, um, he claimed he taught in parables, um, and also he had crucifixion-like wounds on his feet, then that narrows it down and that kind of makes it more plausible that this act is actually you know, that of Jesus himself and not a disciple. Um, so that would be the kind of, that is the argument for, for saying it is actually the tomb of Jesus. And the fact it's renovate, uh, revered um, so much and visited even, you know, even the Muslims who do not believe it's the tomb of Jesus, they still will come and pray and, and, and you know, present, um, you know, flowers and other offerings to, they, they will venerate this tomb still. And that's been their tradition from their ancestors. So they still hold it in great veneration. So if you put all of those together, it starts to build a case. Again, I don't think it's a watertight case. I think more evidence is needed. Of course, like I said, with an extraordinary claim comes the, an extraordinarily high bar for, for evidence. But there's enough there for there to be a few documentaries and some more research on this. And I hope that continues. Because, you know, like you, I want to know, I want to know, you know, as much as you do about the truth of these kind of claims. And, and if it's not truth, you know, if it's not, if it's not the right tomb, that's fine. You know, I, I'd rather know one way or the other. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, at this point, uh, let's, let's get to the point, I think, that the audience has been waiting for. Um, obviously, your views on the Shroud of Turin. So, first of all, I just want to kind of get, what's the history of the involvement of Ahmadiyya Muslims in yeah. general with the Shroud? Uh, and then obviously, what's your position on the Shroud of Turin? So it's a really interesting topic, because if you had asked, if we were speaking maybe 10, 15 years ago, you know, that would be it would be a looser connection between the community and the Shroud. Um, we don't I, I don't believe there's the, the, the founder of the community didn't talk about the Shroud in, in 1890s, because although the Shroud had been photographed by Secondo Pierre, it you know, news of the Shroud hadn't reached him. He doesn't speak about it specifically. So. It's not a core part of our faith or belief, really. But what has happened is when the analysis and, and uh, has happened to the Shroud, there, there have been those who have written um, about, does the Shroud prove that Jesus survived the crucifixion? Now, I know that there are more who have written about, does the Shroud prove that Jesus died and was resurrected? Um, but the, there, were, there was evidence in the 70s, the 80s around, you know, people were starting to research. They'd seen what Sturp was saying about the Shroud, and they were speculating around, you know, could it help us learn more about the events of the crucifixion? <clears throat> now, for the, like I was saying earlier, for the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes that Jesus survived the crucifixion as a human being. He was nursed back to health and then he continued his mission. So for us, more than so than other Muslims, if, you're, if you take the orthodox viewpoint from an Islamic point of view that actually Jesus was 
saved from crucifixion, he was never put on the cross. Well, then the shroud has zero significance or interest. If you don't even believe it, he was crucified, then the man of the shroud might be someone, you know, we don't even know who that would be from an orthodox Islamic viewpoint. But if, as Ahmadiyya Muslims, you believe that he survived the crucifixion, then the shroud potentially is a really interesting piece of evidence that may help us understand what actually happened. Um, in terms of a direct link with the community, what was fascinating was that um, when the shroud was exhibited, I believe in 2010, um, the current caliph of our community, really coincidentally, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to just have a sit down chat um, with the, um, the president of our community in Italy. And over a coffee, uh, you know, he was just sharing with me the, the coincidences of what took place that allowed our, our Khalifa, uh, his name is Mirza Masrur Ahmed, the current head of the community, to actually end up viewing the shroud in Turin, which he did. Um, so there were a number of strange coincidences. You know, he was traveling. He had a, a, a travel plan across Europe anyway. He was visiting different countries. And two or three different things came together, which allowed this opportunity to come about for him to not only see the Shroud, but also, um, you know, have a private audience with the director of the Shroud exhibition, Monsignor Gilberti. So th this audience was, um, was brought about. There's a video online, which I'm happy to share with you as well. There's a sit-down discussion between the, the current head of the Ahmadiyya community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, and Monsignor Gilberti, who organized the, um, the Shroud exhibition, and also someone from... The, the sort of the Islamic expert within the within the group at the time as well from the um, from the Christian side they're kind of Islamic spokesmen if you like or more of an expert on different types of Islamic beliefs and they had a really interesting dialogue as well um, you know it, they ended up focusing on uh, the commonality was around look at the suffering Jesus went through that was something that you know all of us can kind of agree on and look at the suffering people go through for their faith and for their belief and love of God. That was what they ended up kind of coming together on, because at the start, there was a there was an acknowledgement that actually, you know, your community believes Jesus traveled to India. Yes, we do. You have a different response about what happened at the crucifixion. Yes, we do. But that was what they kind of came together on. But so that was the first time that was the first time that the any living, um, you know, leader of the community was able to visit the shroud. So the current caliph, he is the worldwide head. He is our figurehead. He's our equivalent of the pope. He actually got to see the shroud directly. Um, you know, at, in, at that exhibition. And following on from that, that led to more interest within the community about the Shroud. Um, and also it led to, you know, the Review of Religions magazine I'm, I'm involved in and I write for us picking up the topic again and, you know, writing again about the Shroud. And it was, it was doing that kind of refresh of the, of the Shroud research we had before that we got back in touch with Barry Schwartz and we said, hey, Barry, you know, we'd spoken to you, you had you had, uh, submitted articles for this magazine before. How about we do a refreshed one? We've noticed you've got something on your website. Can we reprint that? Can you help us with doing an edition on the Shroud? And that, you know, kind of got the momentum going again around the whole topic of the Shroud of Turin and the, the Ahmadiyya community. So the community doesn't have, you know, generally we believe in the authenticity of it. It's not an article of faith. It's not critical to our, our belief system, really. But given that we believe Jesus survived the crucifixion, we believe the shroud is like a, a you know a key piece of evidence potentially and a sort of a tantalizing clue or a you know a way of viewing what went on during the crucifixion and you know potentially was it you know does it give us a clue about what happened after that was there a resurrection for example was there a corona discharge or some kind of burst of radiation the shroud gives us that kind of um, window into this world and that's why the community are interested in it um 
but you know for me personally what what fascinated me was this is something that you can touch and feel and hold if you're lucky enough to <laughs> metaphorically let's say and analyze and scrutinize so up until now a lot of what we talked about dale in terms of what happened at the crucifixion etc to answer that normally we would have have to study specific texts we'll be looking at different codices what was the oldest version we have of this gospel and that gospel and how authentic is it how was it what was the chain of narration maybe how was it named what year does it date from it's very much scriptural analysis what the shroud potentially gives you uh you know uh the chance to do is to actually a physical object that we can potentially ask questions to and maybe get answers so it gives you that that opportunity to maybe move this on from talking about scripture and text to actually a physical object now I know that there's about more, there's probably more views on the shroud than there are on the New Testament now, but it at least gives you the possibility of trying to delve into an actual object to try and understand you know what went on. So that's that's kind of the background of the community. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, and we can get into more detail, is from 2015 and uh, 2015 until COVID started, and you know we had we had exhibitions um, on the shroud of Turin. So we had. Our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has an annual gathering in the UK that attracts about 40,000 different people. It is over three days. Um, it is both for our own members to come together and meet their friends and colleagues from other countries, but also it's, a, it's an, uh, an event that we invite you know, guests, dignitaries, MP, like members of parliament, government, kings, and other leaders from different countries, um, you know, but also researchers as well. And, and one thing we started to do in 2015, I believe it was, was we did an exhibition around the Shroud of Turin and we started to kind of, Barry Schwartz came along to that exhibition as well. He spoke at it and, you know, we've started that tradition of having these, these annual Shroud exhibitions and that's deepened the interest within the community itself and its own members with the Shroud. And it's led to a really interesting collaboration, um, you know, with different Catholic groups, with the Shroud of Turin, British Shroud of Turin Society in the UK. I've been in, I've been in touch with many of them. I know them their members personally now, and so that's another thing that the community started this exhibition, and you know it's become one of the the largest. Straight, you know, strange for me to even say this, but I think it was recognised as the largest shroud exhibition outside of Turin. Is oh. actually you know arguably um, this this convention at a Muslim a Muslim event um, where we've had Barry Schwartz kind of come every year. Again, pre-COVID, we hope to start again. From, from next year, but we had sort of five years in a row where he was coming and, and, and you know, he also brought others with him and we were able to discuss and, and debate the, you know, the shroud and all the different viewpoints. We would also have a, a skeptic come along who doesn't believe in its authenticity at all, Hugh Ferry, who thinks okay. it is a medieval forgery. So we had a whole range of opinions. Um, so the community has started to get more interested, I would say, in the last few years as well. That's really awesome. Yeah, I definitely will congratulate you on the those expositions because I talked to Barry behind the scenes. He that's like one of his favorite things. He his favorite line from from that is you know here I am a Jew uh, presenting about a Christian relic uh, to a bunch of Muslims. So, yeah, you know, that's, that. <laughs> he, Barry basically entered you know um, immortality into the Ahmadiyya <laughs> tradition with that even those who didn't know what the shroud was and hadn't visited the exhibition because they heard his his little line was delivered to the entire audience of the uh, you know of the convention and he spoke just a few minutes before one of the major keynotes by our caliph so a lot of people around the world as well listened to that so everyone knew who Barry was after after he said that that famous line about you know a Jewish man a Christian talking about Christian relic to a Muslim audience 
Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Um, okay, so so kind of getting into it here then. So you kind of hinted at this, right? So obviously the Shroud of Turin isn't just a burial cloth. It has these images on yeah. it. And you know, obviously they have various physical and chemical characteristics that uh, Stir has proven. And um, I, I, I think you guys would more or less agree with all those features. Um, yeah. But beyond that, I also want to ask you, how are those images formed? What, what yeah. did Ahmadiyya Muslims or yourself think about that? Absolutely. So I would say from an Ahmadiyya Muslim point of view, I'll tell you the, the kind of the major theories they're backing, then I'll give you my personal opinion as well, which is mostly in line. Um, so again, Holger Kirsten is a figure that comes up a lot. So Holger Kirsten, controversial German theologian, um, he wrote a book called The Jesus Conspiracy. Now, I don't agree with the conclusions of that book. Um, because he was trying to say that the carbon dating was deliberately skewed on purpose to try and discredit the shroud because the shroud proves Jesus survived the crucifixion. I personally don't think that's what's happened. I think the, the carbon dating, which we can talk about, I think it's sometimes we have a really elaborate explanation. Sometimes it can be very simple. I think it was it was a rewoven section of the cloth, which is why the dates are skewed. That's the theory I tend towards. But what Holger Kirsten did in that book was he said that, look, if you take the aloe and the myrrh, those herbs that we know about, they're mentioned in the gospel, they're mentioned in, in large quantities as well. If we take those herbs and we create a particular type of ointment or mixture that we believe that Ahmadiyya Muslims as well believe would have been placed on Jesus to try and help heal him. If you take those herbs and you cover a body with that herb, those herbs, and then you place that person, and there's a photo vividly etched in my mind, a picture of Holger Kirsten himself, draping a linen cloth over him, lying next to a radiator, <laughs> um, you know, um, and, and lying with the cloth, yeah. an image of some kind can form on that cloth, which has some of the characteristics of what we see on the shroud. Um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, when he wrote Jesus in India, the book, he also talked about traditions saying that there's this ointment known as the ointment of Jesus. And he talked about how it contains aloe and myrrh and some other, other um, different chemicals and substances and so what he you know he talked about that and said you know this is something that would have been applied to Jesus and he mentioned different medical books of history that talk about this ointment so what researchers have done on the Ahmadiyya side is they've taken that ointment they've created it and they've tried to say look if we take a young I think they took a young child <laughs> they took a, a youngster <laughs> we put that ointment on him does it leave some kind of uh, some kind of impression on a linen cloth if you know the body is warm and if that person is perspiring and there is heat there, can it lead to um, some kind of uh, image? And, and, it, and it does, from what I've seen, it does. However, so that's the Ahmadiyya Muslim view would be that, that it was some kind of natural reaction between the, the herbs, the, the uh, you know, mixture, the, the, the herbal mixture, the sweat on the cloth and you know, the sweat from, sorry, from the body, the body heat and the linen cloth. So that's sort of the Kirsten and Gruber method, I guess. Is, right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, so I, I mean, my personal view on that is that that explains part of it. But when you see the shroud, when you, and I haven't seen the actual one, but I've seen a life-size replica based on Barry's photos. When you see the image, the resolution of that image is incredible. It's not a blurred possible markings, etc. It's very clear. You're able to make out so much detail. So I have to say, it's a mystery, right? We don't know how that image was formed. It's still a mystery. And when I, when you speak to Barry as well, you know, he will be very open in that. He was like, Stirp had one job to explain how the image formed. And they weren't able to answer that. They collected a lot of information. They can tell you very clearly what it's not, but they're not able to come up with an image uh, formation mechanism for that. Now, I think 
if you look at science, right, there's a lot of things we don't know, though. I think what my view is this, as soon as some people hear that we're not sure how this was done, people, others immediately jump in and say, it's a miracle, this is God, or this is a resurrection, or this involved radioactivity. They jump, I think they jump too far to other conclusions sometimes, because they say, well, you know, science can't explain it, which means it's a miracle. Now, I'm a man of God, but I'm also a man of science as well. I don't, I personally don't believe they conflict. I, I think the scientific method adds a massive amount of value. Um, science doesn't know how gravity works. We don't know what particle or what mechanism is, you know, is responsible for this force that goes across huge distances that's causing the earth right now to rotate against the sun. We don't know how that is working, but that doesn't mean we need to doubt that it exists as a mechanism and, you know, that gravity, it does exist. So I think... Yes, there is a gap here. They, there isn't a, no one has recreated the shroud. No one, no one, whether they believe in a, you know, um, whether they believe in him having survived the crucifixion or whether they believe in him having uh, kind of died or whether they believe in a resurrection, no one's been able to recreate, to my knowledge, the, the Shroud of Turin style image of someone um, that matches all the characteristics. There's some really difficult characteristics, right? The image, and you'll know this from your conversations with Barry, the, you know, the image is so superficial. It's millimeters in, in, in depth. It doesn't stain all the way through the cloth. The blood stains do, but the image is very superficial. Um, so, you know, how, like, you know, even if Holger Kirsten and others, Elman Gruber and others are able to formulate some kind of, some kind of image on a cloth, they haven't been able to present, you know, the actual, they haven't been able to produce something that matches the shroud. So first of all, I would say we don't know exactly how it formed. There are hints that there may be some natural mechanisms. There are other hints as well, and this is circumstantial, but the, the New Testament does talk about at the time of Jesus bowing his head, and you know, it does talk about potentially an earthquake or the ground shaking. So was there, you know, does that lead to some chemicals being in the air that may have had some contribution to the image formation mechanism? Maybe. <laughs> um, there are other theories about, you know, radiation or corona discharge and these other theories, right? You know, that that is a possibility. Um, what I, for me, it's, I, I, like I said, I'm so glad we've got Barry Schwartz, right? I'm really glad we do have him and and his background, right? And, you know, he he actually believes, and I agree with him, that it's, he's almost been chosen for this work because he's able to do, to tread a very delicate path, um, but he's able to be really objective here. So in terms of, does the resurrection, you know, is the resurrection proved by the image on the shroud? Like, does, could a radiation spark have led to that image? You know, ask Barry, right? And he'll say, well, actually, Ray Rogers and others have spoken about how if it was radiation, for example, that would have made changes to the cloth. The linen fibers would have physically been different. Um, and I believe there was a paper in 2005 where Ray Rogers spoke about that. And he, he actually did the experiment. You know, he, he exposed some linen too to a corona discharge and he kind of talked about what that would look like under the microscope what the different you know characteristics are off the cloth and how it would change when it's been exposed to things like this so i really hope that we can keep <clears throat> the debate on the shroud in the right realms because the problem is this when people start going down um a you know there was a there was a resurrection or the body levitated or the body like dematerialized and mm. the people the skeptics who are already out there and the real scientists, you know, the, the really smart scientists that we want to spend time on this topic, they're going to go even further away because they're going to see people drawing some really bold conclusions that are not justified, I believe, from a lot of the evidence. So we need to kind of like, I hope we can keep the discussion and debate on the shroud 
you know, in the right area where it attracts more interest, similar to the tomb in Kashmir, I want more people to be looking at this. I want it to be analyzed and studied, and I want more data to come out about the shroud. And I do worry sometimes that it's like, you know, in books that I've got on my shelves here as well, there, there's certain, you know, Frederick Zugaby is a pathologist, absolutely. But some of what he wrote in his book about the shroud and the medical side of it veers more into theology. Uh, and that then means that some of his conclusions are not going to be, you know, they're, they're almost discredited in a way. Um, so I hope that, you know, there will be more research done in an objective way. I hope, you know, Sturp had a proposal for a follow-up that never happened. I hope within our lifetimes that, you know, the, the uh, I hope within Barry's lifetime that there will be, you know, an additional opportunity to study the shroud, to try and get more information on it, because it, you know, it is a fascinating cloth. And I think it's, you know, I, I think that image needs explanation, right? There's, there's currently a million million pounds reward put out there, um, you know, by David Rolfe, who I've had a chance to meet a few times, a friend of mine, you know, who, who's made films on this topic, and he's put a million pound reward for anyone who can recreate the shroud. So um, I hope that sparks some interest, and I hope we can learn more about what the shroud really, really is. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Very interesting. Uh, first of all, very good. You covered two questions at once. Uh, so that was awesome. Um, one, one last follow up on this image thing, because it, it seems like for, um, from an Ahmadiyya Muslim perspective, regardless of, you know, whether you take it, it's a mystery, you don't know, there is a common yeah. denominator that the alloys and myrrh played some role in healing Jesus to one kind of thing, there's a finding that Sturb found where there, there was no detectable traces of any of these compounds on the shroud. So I just want to put it to you as kind of like a challenge, like, um, what do you make of that? Like, it, Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember, I remember like as a youngster, I say that like in my 20s, emailing Barry back in the day, yeah. talking about this. Um, <clears throat> I think they're organic compounds and organic compounds can, can decompose and decay over time. So I'm not an expert on that, but that's my understanding that the absence of them for right now doesn't mean that they weren't in they weren't uh, on the body of Jesus at the time uh, I, because they're organic compounds they are over time they will break down it's a surprising finding definitely um but yeah that's that was kind of my take on it is that you know we don't know we because it's been such a long period of time you know there are many things that may have happened to the cloth as well it's surprising that there aren't any um but you know i would st i still think there's an element that i believe it could still be part of the 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 mechanism even if today, in the, you know, when Sturp looked at it a few years ago, in the passage of 2000 years, things could have changed and they could have been, you know, those organic compounds could have broken down and not been present anymore. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, okay, so one thing um, I want to move on to then and uh, away from the science, but look, we are theologians. I, I'm a Christian theologian. I'm proud yeah. of such. You're an Islamic theologian. So what is the theological significance of these images then um, for your faith? It's a really fascinating question <laughs> because I, I almost feel like if I, I was reflecting on it just in preparation for our discussion, right? It's really, well, first of all, it's hard to say, but let me share, let me share how it's impacted my personal life, right? So I was thinking about this. The last 10 years, the Shroud, with, with His Holiness our Caliph visiting the Shroud of Turin, a bridge has been formed with the Christian group and Christians, multiple different Christian groups that wouldn't have existed before. We've had the events where we've had, you know, we've had dialogue with uh, Catholic groups and we've had exchanges. I've had a chance to meet Barry Schwartz, but then also, you know, I've had a chance to meet uh, Bruno Barberis, who used to be, you know, the president of the Centro, who manages the Shroud. Like 
there's been a massive um, enrichment on a personal level um, in terms of a dialogue and, and you know being able to come together with those of different faiths first and foremost and also like just sharing information and saying it's okay to not have the same conclusion but just actually you know coming together on our common belief in God if nothing else and in the, these days of athe where atheism is abound even that I really enjoyed right coming together with people who all believe in God and have that as a commonality and are able to come together and, and you know, share what the similarities we have. So there's been an element of almost outreach. I don't know what the right word is, but it's, it's allowed the message. Um, it's allowed Jesus in the shroud or the shroud as an object has allowed, at least for me, to have more interaction with Christian groups than I would have had previously. Um, it's also, I know for those in the UK who have uh, Pam, Pam Moon is the lady who owns the shroud replica and this exhibition that we normally use as the basis for our exhibition. Um, she's she's taken that to different churches she's taken that to different communities and you know it's through the shroud she's been able to interact and reach people in a way that you know churches haven't done previously it is visual we're in an age where everything is visual right there's everyone's got a camera now in their in their pocket nearly with their mobile phone people like to touch and hold things there is a higher barrier and demand for proof about things I also find it interesting that there's also, you know, there's scholarship out there to saying Jesus never existed as a historical figure, right? I, I spent my time during my studies of looking at different areas. I, I spent some time looking on that. I don't agree with the conclusion, but I, I can understand why some people can start to argue things like that. They were like, where's the physical evidence? I need to see it. I don't see any physical evidence. Where is the physical evidence of Jesus Christ having existed? You know, these relics, I don't agree in because there's so many relics claiming to be the original cross or agent you know claiming to be part of jesus's body or mary's body there's so many things the skeptics are like they're not going to believe that so in that age isn't it amazing that in we're in this age yet we now have through the power of photography we've uncovered this relic and we found some amazing attributes about it that is something we can touch and hold so maybe and i'm speculating i, I don't know <laughs> and i even think in the next 15 years we, you know the shroud might take us in all sorts of directions but right now it is something that is a physical object it's got this very unusual property you know science might believe they've dismissed it through the carbon dating but I, i'm hoping they will revisit that and I'm, i believe the body of evidence showing that the carbon dating is at least questionable is is huge and i think you know anyone who looks at looks at it objectively will say well actually we should probably try and date it again somehow so given all that i'm hoping that you know the shroud is a way to almost stop atheists in their in their in their ways a little bit and make them just stop and think and go hang on a minute maybe we need to look at this maybe there is something here uh, and maybe that's why it is coming out now in this age you know where everyone is where things are more visual things people demand proof and, and you know belief in god is probably at an all-time low maybe that's why the shroud is here right now as an object to kind of bring people closer to god um but no, I mean, I'd be speculating, uh, you know, as to what it really is, but that might be what it's all about. It might be saying, look, science and religion are not as incompatible as you might think. Here is some physical evidence Jesus actually existed. Um, and, you know, here's, here's something that maybe science, you think you have all the answers, but you can't even explain how this image formed. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's for that reason. Maybe it's to make them stop and think and ponder a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. Um, there's people in... I have atheists in this audience. How many times? Yeah. What is the scientific evidence? Well, here yeah. you go. God, God's yeah. giving you something, you know? Uh, 
All right, cool. Um, all right, well, one uh, quick follow-up on that, and I should have asked this before, but one thing that I'm curious about is just in general, from an Ahmadiyya Muslim perspective, um, what kind of perspective would you take on other religions sure, or something yeah. like that? Like, are you an exclusivist or a pluralist? Um, yeah, what, what are Ahmadiyya Muslims on that front? Yeah, so to start with on that, I would say it's the, the first question is like, what does Islam say about other faiths? Now, some will say because Islam came later on, it came in the seventh century, because of that, it's got the luxury to be able to look back and talk about other faiths with authority. Um, so even if you don't believe the message of Islam was, say, God inspired, if it was man, you know, man made, even then, you know, that person in that view, in that scenario, Islam has an unfair advantage, if you like, because it can talk about previous religions and it can kind of put them in context, whereas, you know, Christianity couldn't have talked about Islam, really. Um, having said that, I find what I find fascinating is so first of all, what I would say is that, you know, I was born up, born up and raised a Muslim. Um, and so the tradition I learned first, which I think is important, was was the Islamic tradition. But even even in the Islamic tradition, like Christianity and Judaism are mentioned so many times, um, so many times in terms of you know them coming from God. So the Ahmed, the, the Islamic, the true Islamic faith, true Islamic teaching is all prophets are from God. You know, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, um, Noah, Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. All of these prophets are prophets of God. They all represented um, all of them were prophets. Prophets are God's representative on the earth at that time. Each of them was sent to a specific people, nation or area of the world and with a specific message. <clears throat> the final verse of the Holy Quran, we believe the Quran was direct revelation of God. The very final verse says that, you know, today I have completed my favor upon you. Uh, meaning the, the revelation of, of the, the Quranic of the Quran, and you know I've, I've named your religion Islam. So Islam is seen as like the culmination of religious evolution, um, and the and the, the the final installment, if you like, of, of this teaching. Um, and it is it builds upon the same teaching for the previous religions. And the Islamic viewpoint would be where there is a difference of opinion, where there are beliefs in other religions that are incompatible. You know, it, that's because over time things have changed or there's different responses to those message, different interpretations. And that's led to these differences, whereas actually the ultimate truth is one. And it's, you know, there is one truth that is expressed in all these different religions in different ways. So that isn't even that's not some new age thinking. That is like the core what the Quran actually says. Um, and I just like to quote a verse on that um, as well, if I may, if I can just find, my, find it in my notes. Um, just wanted to make sure I get it absolutely accurate. Um, one second. I think I sent this to you earlier on as well, and I'm struggling to find it in my notes, but I will paraphrase. So the, the verse talks about how that the, you know, that the, the Christians and the Jews and those and the Sabians, it talks about. And it says those who believe in God and do good works and believe in the last day on then shall come no fear, nor shall they grieve. So it's basically saying that there is no monopoly on salvation, if you like, want of a better word mm. to get into heaven. And, you know, which Muslims do believe in an afterlife to get into. And they believe that's the ultimate goal to obtain heaven, to get into heaven. It's not exclusive to one specific group or, or, you know, sect or one specific schism or religion. 
ultimately, you know, we are all individually accountable to God. Ultimately, each of us has a different experience. If someone's grown up as in a, a Jewish tradition and, you know, they've not had interactions with Muslims or other faiths, then, you know, can we expect them to have, you know, should they be judged in a way that, well, you know, Islam is true and you didn't accept it. That means, you know, you can't be accepted into into heaven you know that doesn't make sense and and the you know the the god of the quran if you want to use that term doesn't say that he says basically everyone will be judged based on their actions and everyone's deeds are judged based on their intentions as well right we don't know the intentions of some people as well they may be doing things that that are are wrong or incorrect or not in keeping with others faith but they may be doing it because they believe it's true themselves so ultimately only god can judge there's no guarantee in Islam that if you are a Muslim or if you follow this tradition or that, that you are guaranteed heaven. You know, each individual is responsible for their own actions. Um, Muslims pray five times a day. And, you know, I think in total, something like 33 times a day, they pray to be guided. We pray that guide us to God, guide us on the right path. You know, the path of those on whom you've bestowed blessings, not the path of those who've gone astray, nor the path of those who have incurred displeasure. That is repeated multiple times through the Islamic prayer. 33 times a day, Muslims are praying that, that prayer. So it, there is the viewpoint that, yes, Islam makes the, makes the claim to be direct revelation from God and a true religion. It affirms and it, it kind of builds upon the previous religions we've had, but it also corrects them as ways. So, you know, the Quran does highlight things around the status of Jesus, whether he was a son of God in some way, his, his status, and the Quran does give teachings that are contrary to core Christian teaching. It does say that he was not the son of God. It does reject things such as the Trinity. And it does say that he died a natural death um, and that he was a messenger and a prophet rather than part of God uh, or part of a Trinity. So it does make claims counter to other religions. But again, like I said, the vast majority of it though, um, you know, really does match a lot of the teachings of, um, of Christianity and Judaism in particular, but also all faiths as well. And, and the last thing I'll say is that there was, you know, where the Ahmadiyya Muslim community comes in is that there were prophecies at the time of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He told his followers, he said, there will come a time when nothing will be left of the faith of Islam except its name. He said the Quran will be wrapped up and kept nicely adorned in, in bookshelves and in, 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 it will be kept in boxes. But it, the knowledge of the Quran would be lost, the true knowledge. And he also said that, you know, the mosques would be full of worshippers, but their prayers wouldn't be reaching God. Um, and the Ahmadiyya community is, you know, the, the advent of the founder of our community, we believe is because, you know, Islam is in this time when it, it's, it's, you know, struggling, it's really struggling. And the whole purpose of the advent of uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, who founded the Ahmadiyya community, was to revive the religion, was to bring it back to its true roots, was to, you know, make the message, you know, almost in, in, in the way Jesus did, make the message more personal, focus it back on areas of peace and love and harmony and highlight and emphasize those aspects more and try and bring people, Muslims in particular, back to the true essence of their faith. Like the community's motto is love for all, hatred for none. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's something that, you know, the world definitely needs more of and something, you know, everyone can kind of get behind in terms of, you know, a way to try and improve the world right now. Because, you know, the Muslim world right now is struggling. And I think the last thing I'll say on that is the community is blessed with leadership, a khalifa, a caliph, who everyone pledges their allegiance to and everyone is, be is behind. And right now, the rest of the Muslim world, if there's one thing they really lack at the moment, it's a unifying voice. Uh, you know, they, they lack that unity. Um, so that is how I would see the Islamic faith and also the Ahmadiyya Muslim community's role within the, the sort of the world of Islam.
Interesting. I'm glad I asked that, Ben, because uh, yeah, you take it seems like you take kind of an inclusivist perspective. Whereas when I when I read the paper you you gave me, um, I thought you were more a pluralist. So I'm glad that you kind of clarified that. So all right, awesome. Um, okay, uh, so so kind of focusing on the shroud. Um, We've been talking about how you think it's a naturalistic explanation, both in terms of Jesus uh, swooning and also in terms of how the images were formed. Yep. Um, I want to ask you kind of a hypothetical, though. Let, let's okay. say, because, um, you know, I, I would argue, I think we can prove that it's uh, supernatural, for lack of a better word, or uh, God designed uh, yep. is how I would argue it. So let, let's say we do that someday and we say, look, these images were supernaturally formed. Um, how would that affect kind of your theology and how you interpret the shroud? Would you, you, do you think that proves that Christianity would be true or can that be accommodated into Islam and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think even the shroud itself, it's, it gave, there was a time when I thought, ah, finally, the shroud is going to put an end to these debates <laughs> about did Jesus die or not? And it just, it seems to have just added another aspect where there's even more debates and a range of viewpoints. So I would say, <clears throat> and from an Ahmadiyya Muslim point of view as well, the shroud is not central or key to the belief that Jesus survived the crucifixion and, you know, lived a post-crucifixion life, etc. That that really stems more from theology and also a, re a particular reading of the Gospels and, and, and evidence we believe. But to be really honest, it's like, you know, that we've started with the conclusion. The Ahmadiyya community have started with the conclusion um, and then they've looked at how that can be, you know, they've looked for evidence to see whether they can support that from other areas. And that's where the shrouds fitted in. So in reality, I think if, in reality, I think even if the shrouds, um, let's say there was some way we could say the shroud shows some kind of, you know, resurrection that, you know, went, that you know, radiation was involved and it was something miraculous. I don't think that would change the beliefs of the community about the position of Jesus we would still believe him to be a prophet of God and we wouldn't believe him to be divine in some way. Um, I, I don't have an issue with saying that the, the image of the shroud was formed through something miraculous. I think the miraculous side, often it's miracles are things that we don't have an explanation for right now. So I think there's absolutely, you know, God could have produced that image, you know, as a sign for us in this age right now, for us to realize that actually he exists and that Jesus is someone we should study and is, is a person of importance. I think the, the viewpoint of who Jesus was and his station comes from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the revelation of the Quran. And that is seen as the, the key thing. So I even think, and I'm being, you know, we are speculating here, which is fun to do. I think even if the shroud image was shown to be somehow related to, had some element of radiation and was something supernatural, I don't believe that would change the Muslims' viewpoint on who, um, who Jesus was, and that's because they would have had revelate. They would believe the Quran to be the revelation from God, and in that, it's very clear around the station of of where Jesus is. Um, but it would. I mean, it's it's a fascinating question, right? We it's hard to predict, and I almost feel like, yeah, the deeper we get into these topics like the shroud, the more the the bigger the range of responses and viewpoints on it. It's like crazy how many different viewpoints there are right now of, of like what the shroud is and what it represents. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and I'm sort of curious because one thing that I I thought of, right? It, let, if again under this hypothetical that yeah. the images are supernatural kind of thing, um, I think a, a more defensible position you could just go for a supernatural swoon theory. Great, but yeah, yeah. That's why it's radiation or whatever. God healed him, yeah. kind of thing, right? 
Can I say as well on the swoon, right? If we look at the if we look at the history of the prophets again, if we try and look at it objectively, and you know, with respect, if we if we uh, don't think of Jesus having a unique position, and we think of him as a line of prophets, there are so many traditions from different religions. Sorry, for, yeah, different religions where, you know, a religious prophet makes a claim, and the people around him try to kill him. I mean, it happened with Prophet Muhammad as well, and other prophets. And what do we see? We see that no matter what the people try against a truthful prophet you know their designs are frustrated god finds a way to save that person god finds a way to prevent that you know him from you know prophet is thrown on on a fire and the fire is cooled right so we also see the crucifixion in line with that paradigm if you like of an enemy goes against a chosen person of god god finds a way to protect that person that person prays to be saved or protected and they are in a almost miraculous way so that's the blueprint if you like that we would look at different events that prophets go through and it's that blueprint that we would apply from an islamic point of view from a Ahmadiyya muslim point of view to the crucifixion as well his enemies tried to kill him they wanted to end his claims of of uh, prophet being the messiah for the jews they wanted to end that claim um but he was ultimately their designs and their plans were frustrated and god saved him that is the kind of the narrative we would see gotcha. okay um one thing i, I want to ask on the other side because I have actually, I, I'm friends with uh, Shabir Ali, who's a- Oh, excellent. <laughs> yes. like so, you know, I, I kind of talked talk to him about the shroud evidence and- Yeah, what did he say? So he was kind of getting convinced. Like, again, he, he knew nothing about it until I brought him the evidence, but he's fi uh, finally, when I kind of got him to go, okay, maybe they are supernatural, yeah. but I just, just they're Satan. Satan did, did it or something. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, like, would, would Ahmadiyya Muslims ever consider that and say maybe maybe Satan made these things? So really, I wondered where that came from. So first of all, Shabir Ali, fantastic debater and an amazing guy. I've I've not had a chance to meet him, but I've seen I've watched all, all his debates online and <clears throat> follow him on YouTube. I actually emailed him many years ago around the topic of Jesus <laughs> and Prophet Jesus because I heard him inclining a little bit towards the swoon theory in one of the answers he gave. <clears throat> so I said to him, well, like you know. Uh, you know, you, you've already come halfway. If you're believing in the swoon theory, what happened next? You know, what, have you looked at this, the idea of Jesus traveling to India? Um, but he was very much, I think at that time he said, look, it's a mystery. We don't know what happened to Jesus afterwards, etc." Um, and I don't know if he still takes the viewpoint of the swoon theory. I don't know. So if he does, the Shroud of Turin should be interesting to Shabir Ali. <laughs> so, um, but then I, I can understand why, why, if you've not already delved into this topic, he may have sort of, you know, not been qualified, I guess, or um, hadn't read widely enough to have a viewpoint on it. Could it be inspired by the devil? Look, that that is a possibility. You know, it's uh, whenever we're looking at something, you know, there may be different uh, sides to it. And uh, we have to kind of question it as well. You know, is this... Uh, what causes to happen you know is this something that is um that is wholesome that we should reference or is this something that that isn't but you know i i personally don't see that as a as an argument for it i see like look we've got this image let's look at how you know what we know about this cloth let's try and look at how it came about it's been venerated another thing like we often we overcomplicate things like we talk about the shroud and you know it's had this long history how do we know it's the original burial cloth like or how how and why would it have survived all that time if there wasn't something special about it if the people who were guarding it or owning it you know didn't didn't feel like this is something really special and worth worth guarding like the fate the fact that we've had this cloth and it's existed for such a long time to me is another evidence that this belongs to someone really famous 
so that the people who had the cloth, you know, tried to preserve it and have preserved it as well. So I think even from that point of view, it's, it's, it is something that is, uh, you know, requires an explanation. And, and uh, personally, I don't think that it was created by the devil, but, you know, it's one of those, we can't really prove it. We probably can't answer that one, one way or the other. We just, we can only speculate. Gotcha. All right. Well, that kind of brings up a, a follow-up, if you don't mind me, that's not on the list. Uh, and I should have put this on the list, but uh, I'm sort of curious from, from your perspective, uh, do you think that there is good historical or otherwise evidence that can link the shroud to the historical Jesus? Uh, or is it pure, it's a faith position kind of thing? Or... Oh, no, it's, if someone believes it's, it's not original and fake, which, which it may turn out to be, right, let's see. They have to explain, like, they have to explain the characteristics of the Shroud of Turin. So Bruno Barberis, who I mentioned earlier, used to be the president of the, the Centro for the Shroud, the Centro Studies for the Shroud in Turin. He's a mathematician by background. He teaches mathematics in university. I once saw him do a calculation on the probabilities of like it not being Jesus. So, um, I mean, he used some artistic license, but it was something along the lines of it's someone who was crucified. That narrows it down. You know, it's a man who was crucified. We look, it looks like there was a crown of thorns placed upon his head. That narrows it down. You know, we can see evidence of something that was like a crown of thorns based on the blood flows. There is a side wound in the side of the body. You know, that would narrow it down as well. You know, the legs are not broken. There's no broken bones, you know, and it's something that was then preserved and it was kept, etc. So just from a probability, right, you know, you have, this is a cloth that shows a picture of a man who was crucified. Soon as you say that, that narrows down the time frame we're talking about crucifixion only ran, you know, ran for a few hundred years under the Romans. It wasn't generally used much beyond that, maybe in the odd occasion, but rarely. Um, it was someone who was crucified. They had a crown of thorns placed on their head. They, there's evidence of a side wound. You know, you have to explain all of these different things, like why, you know, and it does narrow it down to a very specific, you know, person. It's like if they weren't mocking him for claiming to be the king of the Jews, then, you know, those people, then there would be no reason for a crown of thorns. So it had to be likely was someone who was probably claiming something like that so none of these are absolutes um but if you piece together the you know the the evidence or the what we're saying here we're saying it was someone who was crucified they were wrapped in a shroud i should have mentioned that you know that is a you know jewish custom so it was a jewish person you know they were wrapped in a shroud the shroud shows a crown of thorns a side wound no broken bones that cloth was preserved for centuries we still have it today piece all together all of the little bits of pieces and you start to get something that's quite compelling so either it's genuine or it was made to look like it was genuine and you know it was created in line with trying to you know make it in line with the gospel accounts like that is a possibility i think we all have to acknowledge that is but there are some really difficult things to explain about the characteristics of the shroud how accurate some of the you know there's all sorts of studies around pollen and different things yeah uh, you know where was the shroud made what's the linen type what is the weave used? What age does that date to? Lots of little things that, that to me present, and you know, there's circumstantial evidence that when grouped together provides quite a good compelling case for it to be genuine. But ultimately, I don't think we can say it's been proved one way or the other, because these days, you know, proof means something specific in the scientific world. And, and you know, it's quite a high barrier for saying you have actually proved something. Um, so I think it's still, you know, still more research is needed. Gotcha. Yeah, cool. I wanted I wanted to just ask. I was wondering about like other things, you know, like the Sudarium of Oviedo. It's like, oh yeah, that or you know Pontius. Yeah. Pontius. So let's mention the Sudarium. A lot of people have never heard of it or know it even exists, right? And to them, you know, I I I read a book by Mark Guskin. Again, I've had the the fortune. This is 
to your earlier question, you know, what has the Shroud brought me? It's brought me an opportunity to meet people like Mark Guskin and, you know, drive him around. And he's been in, I've been in a car with Mark Guskin and having, and Barry at the same time, having these discussions. I feel really blessed on that. So the Sudarian, Mark mentions in his book, research has shown that there's 150 points of correlation between the Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium of Vida. Like it basically was covering the same body. Now, if the Shroud is a medieval cloth, from the 13th, 14th century. How does that work? We know the Sudarium has a documented history from I think at least the seventh century. So the Sudarium, I'm glad you brought it up. Sudarium is a really strong piece of evidence. And I think those who say it's a medieval cloth and it's a fake, they need to, they need to really explain how then how then the Sudarium uh, you know, has these points of correlation of, of, of blood flow. Um, you know, because that for me is a really strong piece of evidence that not many people know about or talk about. So I'm really glad you brought that up. So yeah, yeah, I had um, Caesar Barda uh, on my show to kind of discuss his research on it. So, awesome. All right. Um, all right, cool. So I'm, I'm kind of getting uh, probing you a bit on your theology how, and how it would react in certain circumstances. Um, I want to provide, there's going to be people in my audience that are going to challenge it and they'll say, sure. well, look, the Shroud of Turin, Obviously, assuming it's a miracle or whatever, obviously that uniquely supports the Christian worldview. I mean, number one, you have evidence for rigor mortis in the shroud that would prove he's dead. He didn't swoon or something. Um, or there's, you know, the fact of no decomposition that kind of supports the resurrection, his body left or something. And, and there's also the fact that it's always been associated with Catholicism or Christ, uh, as a Christian relic, it's never really been yeah. for the centuries a, a Muslim thing. So what do you make of some, uh, someone would counter and say, well, no, it's clearly supporting Christianity. Yeah. 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 It's a very logical viewpoint. So let's take a the, the couple of the things you, you mentioned. Oh, let's start with the easiest one. The third one, totally it's a Christian relic because, you know, the immediate followers at that time, they were, they would have been Christians. Those who preserved the shroud in its earlier stages would have been Christians. There's some evidence that maybe at some point it how it was preserved under some kind of Islamic rule, but you know that wouldn't have been Muslims wouldn't have had a veneration of the shroud. Even today, it's the Ahmadiyya Muslims who believe he survived that have a hold the shroud in you know have think it represents something special. If the Orthodox Islamic viewpoint is Jesus was never on the cross, then the shroud really doesn't play in there in their thinking, which is why you don't find many Muslims who talk about the shroud, actually. Um, so it, I'm happy with it being a Christian uh, relic. That's not an issue at all. The rigor mortis, um, let's talk about that. So again, I'm not a medical <coughs> expert, um, but what, I what I've done is read what other people have uh, written about this topic. And there was one a gentleman called uh, Miguel Lorente, um, who's written a paper. I think he presented it in 2008, originally at a conference in Ohio. Um, and it's linked on Barry Schwartz's uh, shroud.com website. Um, now, interestingly, you know, he's a Catholic by faith, but he basically said he's written a paper that says it analyzes the lack of signs of death and, and the signs of a living person in the shroud. And so he goes through it from a forensic point of view, um, which is his area of expertise. Uh, he's a lecturer at the university in Granada, I think. Um, so he basically goes through his analysis, which is, you know, more interest, more detailed than what I could do. And I'm not qualified to give that, but I can I can share that link with you, Dale. You can share it with your audience to yeah. his paper. And there you'll see how he explains that he doesn't see rigor mortis. He sees a firmness and a tension in certain parts of the body, but not consistent with rigor mortis, which would be across the whole body. And he goes into detail about that, about 
the lack of visibility of thumbs and what that means. Um, and then he also talks about, you know, the position of what he thinks the body would be, would have been in. And also the fact that I believe he feels like there was some kind of a cushion or some kind of padding under certain parts of it. And in his paper, there's a diagram. Um, so again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier and what Barry has often said to me. And, and when he's spoken to the Amdia community, he was like, you will get different scientists, different experts that will look at the same empirical evidence and draw very different conclusions from it. And that's kind of the world we're in right now. So now, and that's not a problem. And I, I encourage and welcome the debate that happens. I think that's a really good, healthy thing. Even as Muslims, we're encouraged, desperately encouraged to seek out knowledge. You know, don't just believe on something because your forefathers have believed on it, like analyze, scrutinize and seek knowledge. So I always find it enriching to read different viewpoints to a, and people trying to figure out this mystery. But, you know, he has talked about a lack of, um, you know, not quite not rigor mortis, actually, but actually saying that, you know, there is tension and there's certain uh, muscles that look like they are contracted, but it's not something seen across the whole body. And the decomposition part is interesting because then I would decomposition to me suggests the body was still alive. It would be if, if it was if it wrapped a live body. Let me phrase it this way. If it wrapped a live body and we believe Jesus had survived and, and didn't die, then that would also have led to a, an image that showed no decomposition um, in terms of the body because you know, he wasn't going through a, a you know, dying process and, and et cetera. The body was still very much alive. So there are different viewpoints, like Rodney Hoare is, is another uh, scholar. I believe he was even chairman of the British Shard of Turin Society at one point. So we're talking about the 70s or 80s. Again, from a Christian, coming from a Christian background, um, you know, who wrote a book around um, you know, the shroud proving that Jesus survived the crucifixion. So there are a range of viewpoints. You know, my, uh, I remember reading, I read about the shroud in my early 20s. I was like, right, finally, we have now got something conclusive that is going to settle this debate. I don't think it has. I think it's blown the debate <laughs> even wider open and yeah. it's opened up new aspects to the debate as well. So, you know, it's fascinating. It really, I love talking about it. You know, I enjoy talking about it. I love reading about it. I've, I've been enriched by meeting so many different people from different walks of life. I wouldn't be here talking to you now if it wasn't for the show. Um, but it's really hard to kind of get conclusive evidence I, uh, and could draw conclusive conclusions. Like if you, I think to put into context how long ago the Stirps work was, because, you know, saying it was, you know, 40 years ago, et cetera, sometimes we lose the significance. Like look at the size of the cameras that they used <laughs> and that will put into perspective how out of date the technology is by modern standards. And I hope, at some point, you know, there, there will be, um, you know, more tests can be done. I know how hugely controversial it is, but I hope we can delve more into the shroud and try and understand, you know, understand its mysteries and ultimately what its meaning is, is, is that, you know, I'd I don't know. I think we will find out in a, in a few decades time what it really, its significance. But right now it's still, uh, it's sort of elusive as it is, you know, the image formation technique is as elusive as, you know, what its meaning really is. For sure. Yeah, it needs more testing. I think we're all on the same page there. Let, you know, STIRP2, we need that. So. Yeah. All right. Um, I have a, a couple couple follow-ups. These come from like uh, Christian audience members and they wanted on this question, they kind of wanted me to ask this. So this is a common objection. It, this applies not just to like Ahmadiyya Muslims, but it's it's kind of a common objection to all Islam where they, yeah. they say, okay, well, look, okay, somehow Allah prevented Jesus from dying on the cross in one way or another. Um, then, but we have this weird thing where, well, his disciples after seeing him came to this wrong conclusion where they thought Jesus died and rose from the dead. Um, so it's kind of a common objection. Well, wouldn't this theologically make 
a lot kind of a deceiver or worse maybe jesus is a deceiver and yeah lying to them yeah like what do you make of that it's a really good question <clears throat> so first of all i would say that i don't see so in the events of the crucifixion so i'm not i know for example hugh hugh shonfield a famous scholar talked about the passover plot mm. and <clears throat> in, in the passover plot he talks about jesus fulfilling prophecies on purpose to try and prove that he was the messiah it's almost like premeditated on purpose fulfilling things for the sake of it there's an element of deceit almost in the way he describes it i don't believe in that i believe that jesus was a truthful prophet you know as far as he was concerned if you imagine he was put through this punishment he prayed to be saved from it in the night before in the garden of gethsemane i believe his final cry of you know my lord my lord why hast thou forsaken me is his belief that hang on you're supposed to save me from this cross from this punishment you know, we're, we're told in the New Testament that he prayed to be saved for the cup to pass from him and that an, an angel strengthened him and gave him strength. And I believe that angel was telling him, look, God will protect you and will save you. So his last cry is like, why is this happening? This wasn't part of the script, if you like. What happened next in terms of the body being taken down and nursed back to life and then him continuing to, you know, sorry, nursed and revived and then he's continuing his mission. I don't believe there's any deceit in that. I think Jesus would have would have basically, if he had been revived, would have felt this is through God's grace that this has happened to me. This is a miracle. And it was a miracle. We still believe it to be you know, miraculous that he was saved in this way. Um, and his mission doesn't change. His mission is to continue to preach and to preach to others. Now, he showed himself to his disciples so that they would have faith in him and that they would believe in him. Now, Theology is like, the, it's hard to understand, you know, how do we try to separate those events from a prophet who being put through a trial and surviving and then continuing his mission versus a prophet who came to die for our sins and once resurrected, told everyone, you know, I have resurrected, this was fulfillment, you know, it's hard to separate those two narratives because it gets into theology, right, which then gets into the whole question of who did Jesus say he was, <laughs> What evidence do we have of that? When was that viewpoint of Jesus codified? And like, I can't, we, we don't have time to get into the answers of these. So let me just tease the questions out there. W what did Jesus say about himself? Who recorded that? Does the influence of the viewpoint of the authors have an impact on that message? Were there different responses? When I started to study the New Testament, I was, and, and scholarship around that, I was amazed at the range of responses to the message of Jesus. Um, who took ownership of that message after his death? Who started to codify what Christianity was? I would say that was more St. Paul, who had actually maybe never met Jesus, potentially, or maybe he did at the road to Damascus. But maybe other than that, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. So what about James, the brother of Jesus? Did he have a different viewpoint? You know, was their emphasis slightly different? You start to unravel this whole story about where you realize that actually, sadly, it's really complicated to know exactly what was taught and what Jesus really believed about himself and what he said about himself, because he spoke in parables. His words are mysterious in some ways. That's the essence of what his style of preaching. So it's open to so many different interpretations. And that's why you get some crazy books, right? You get all sorts of books written yeah. from, on the fringes as well about what, you know, what the disciples of Jesus were, were really about and what was really going on. Jesus because it's very true. scant information, right? The scant information, there's not many years of his ministry that we know about that are recorded in the gospels, maybe one or two years only. And, and also how many gospels were there originally? How did these four get chosen as the, the authentic canon? Are there different gospels? It opens up this whole range. So uh, my viewpoint would be that Jesus himself 
um, didn't claim to be divine. He certainly claimed a special relationship with God. And I, I would say it's the limitations of our language, really, um, that have led us to kind of get very maybe hung up a little bit on the literal side of this. So I would interpret him and others being sons of God in a metaphorical way. Me and the father, the father and I being one, I would take them more metaphorically. I, I think he very clearly believed in a God that he prayed to someone separate from him that he sought guidance from, that he prayed to, that he prayed, that he told us to pray to, that he that he said is only one. Here are Israel, your God is one God is a crucial thing he did say. And then I think after the, after that, and this is typical of Islamic theology, the, there's been layers and layers of different interpretations and canons and councils that have led to a view now that is really hard to unpick to try and understand what Jesus really did. And there's thousands of books probably written on this by people way more qualified than me that have gone into the analysis of what he really said, what were his true sayings, you know, what did he really believe? Um, and there's been a range of outcomes just in the Christian world. Forget Islam for a second, just within the Christian world, there's so many different responses to the person of Jesus and, and what he was. So, um, so I think it's not surprising that then when an Islamic religion comes along, where Jesus is part of Islam, but the core message of Islam and belief in God is separate. When it then talks about Jesus and presents a different viewpoint, um, it's very easy for Muslims to accept that because there's so much debate around the person of Jesus anyway. Um, so that would kind of be the, the, the viewpoint. So it wouldn't be that God was trying to change things, but it wouldn't be that Jesus was being deceitful. It would be that, you know, first of all, his teaching may have been misinterpreted slightly, but also I would say that the viewpoint that he was, um, the viewpoint around his message being universal, go out and preach to everyone else. You know, we now know that some of those verses were verses added later on to some of these gospels. And that's come from Christian theology and scholarship, which I praise. And I'm really glad to have seen that um, in terms of how the Christians have really delved into this scripture and scrutinized it. I yeah. wish all religions did that to this scripture as well. Um, that's where those views have kind of come from. And that's what Muslims will like kind of reference. Um, but really their, their core belief comes from, you know, the Quranic revelation. Okay, um, that there's one little follow up thing, and it, it's not fair to I should have sent you in advance, but it's totally fine, it's totally fine. I'm enjoying the discussion, awesome. All right, cool. Well, uh, do you are you aware of uh, Dr. Mike Lacona, uh, Christian and Paul? No, no, okay. I'm not. No, okay, so this isn't going to be a fair question, then, but just give you a general take. And, sure. um, but Mike Lacona, he's kind of argued, uh, he's provided six argument historical arguments as a a secular biblical scholar and he's trying to say look we can prove historically so forget about who wrote the gospels we can prove within that using historical criteria that jesus historically predicted his death and resurrection this is he and he provides six arguments for right. that um so i just kind of he calls this his islamic catch-22 because so if jesus didn't die and rose he was a false prophet um, but if he did die and die and rise from the dead, this shows that your interpretation of the Quran or the Sun theory is wrong. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. I, again, I know it's not fair to you. you I know, it's totally fine. It's fine. So it's, I would say one example, uh, one thing I'll talk about is, you know, so first of all, did Jesus talk about him, his dying and resurrection, right? There are, there are talks about him talking about um, elements of this. But we don't know when that came into the gospel records. It's really hard to say what he specifically said. But one thing that is recorded in multiple gospels <clears throat> is, is, is him talking about the sign of Jonah. Um, 
So something that Ahmadiyya Muslims and others will talk about as well is, is you know, this sign that Jesus said, look, I'm not going to give you. He says that, you know, an, an adulterous nation demands a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And I think the more if I was to summarize our viewpoint, almost it is we believe that sign and the parallel with Jonah is, is deeper than maybe people realize. So we believe he said that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, you know, the son of man should be in the belly of belly of the earth for three days, three nights. So some will say the only parallel he was drawing there was the time period, but that's their interpretation, right? And so what we would say is Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Now, what was what happened with Jonah? Jonah was someone who preached to a certain people. They rejected him. He was he was, you know, cast out. He was, you know, his life was in peril. He was swallowed up by a whale. And then he was, you know, he took refuge. He was in the whale for these these days. And then he was, you know, he exited the whale and he was alive again. And then he continued his mission. He carried on preaching and he was actually successful after that, after that incident. And that's the parallel, you know, we would draw with the sign of Jonah is that Jesus placed in the belly of the whale three days, three nights. Jesus was in the belly of the earth. He went in alive. He was close to death. He was in, you know, or let me start the story earlier. He was rejected by his people. You know, he had, he was rejected. He was tortured. Like Jonah was same with Jesus. He went through this really difficult trial. He was crucified, but he was saved for three days, three nights. He was in a perilous situation, but ultimately he came out of that. Now, during that time, Jonah was in the whale. Jonah was still alive. So we would say Jesus would still was alive drawing that same parallel. And then after the incident of Jonah and the whale is Jonah continued on his preaching um, and was ultimately successful. And that's what we would say with Jesus as well. So that's one example of that. You know, that is how we would interpret that, that one strong sign about the sign of Jonah. Uh, and we would say that in terms of did Jesus talk about, you know, his body like breaking, dest being destroyed, brought back up? He did. The Gospel of John seems to have the most advanced theology, the most the theology that is most in line with Orthodox Christianity and what St. Paul said as well. But then the Gospel of John is likely, you know, the, the, the it's debated, of course, different viewpoints probably came a bit later in terms of when it was codified and put together. And the authors of those Gospels, did they have a particular viewpoint or a interpretation of Jesus that influenced how they put the story together? And we know that there were additions and changes to the Gospels in time because New Testament scholarship has kind of shown that. So I'm not trying to say that dismisses all of these different arguments. I will definitely look at this catch 22 for Muslims and and read it. Um, but I would say, you know, that was the, the Muslims viewpoint comes from direct revelation and saying that this is the true message. And when I look in the Christian world and New Testament scholarship and others, I see a lot more evidence that seems to be in support of the Islamic viewpoint than I do of the other viewpoint, but it's still hotly debated. And it's really hard to unpick when you have two centuries of histories, different councils, multiple responses, lots of different authors, a lot of oral tradition that then switched to written tradition at some point that we're not sure when. So there's a lot going on here and trying to pick it, unpick it is really difficult. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just difficult. We can't, it's very hard to claim that we have a definitive answer with all of that going on. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, thank you for giving your answer on that one. Um, so one last question for you, because I know you're probably saying, ah, it's two hours already. So, um, all right, cool. Um, so one last question. So we've talked a lot about um, your belief in the shroud and, you know, how that plays into your faith and that sort of thing. One question I, I wanted to ask you in general that I missed was, okay, outside of the shroud, um, why why are you an Ahmadiyya Muslim? Why do you think that it's true? Outside, you kind of hinted in one of your yeah, sure. prophecies, right? But 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would say I, I would start there. I would say, and it comes down to like I think when you have children, <laughs> um, it, often you it, you have to reassess all of your when well, you reassess your beliefs constantly, but you have to really distill down what your belief is because you know I would want my I'd want my kids to to also have belief in God. I want them to question and I want them to analyze what else is out there. But I need to really succinctly explain it to them. So I need to have a really clear, clear succinct way of viewing it myself. And you know, we're in the age of uh, you know, um, the books like The God Delusion and, and other things like this. So we need to be really clear around our beliefs. Um, for me, what it comes down to, and this is not just Islam, it's all religions. It's like, we believe in God, why? One is, well, we look at the world around us and the Quran actually tells you to do this. It says, look around at the world and look at how amazing creation is. Do you see any flaw in, in, the crea in creation around you? And the Quran then challenges you to look again and again and it says your view, you know, your views, your eyesight viewing will be exhausted before you find flaws. So we live in an amazing world that had to come about through some way. So we start off with this mystery of we exist. How did we get here? Then we start to analyze, you know, does God exist? Now, in essence, what I believe religion and, and you know, the monotheistic religions and the, you know, the, the religions, Abrahamic faiths in particular, but probably all religions, they start off with someone making a claim a prophet a human being saying god exists believe in him and i've been sent by him and he talks to me or he talks through me and then you get into the situation of well how do you assess someone if there is someone claiming to be a prophet or a you know a wise person and they're making these claims like how do you assess whether they're true or not so you need to look at the character and the life of the person making the claim absolutely you need to look at the character of, and their life before they made the claim as well as after and during as well did that change were they always you know is there some consistency there in terms of were they truthworthy trustworthy and truthful beforehand etc like what do we know about their character then it's like what did they say did, did what they say is it consistent does it make sense when i look at the world around me you know does it make sense with what i know about the world around me right now you know is there a consistency in message that i can say this holds some truth in it and then prophecies make a, a really key part. You know, what is a prophet? A prophet is someone who makes predictions. So if they made predictions, did those predictions hold true? Did they come true? You know, are there, is there evidence of them coming true? Is there, can you see a line of narration or can you see a line of a timeline of events of prophecies, predictions, and then some kind of uh, fulfillment of those? And then also, I think Jesus himself explained, you know, how you will, how to assess someone if they're truthful or not which is like look at the fruits look at their fruits so these religious people who are making these claims etc what are their followers like do you look at those followers and do they give you are they people you want to be like you know these are some of the in its essence those are some of the tools we're given and then finally god is saying pray to me if you're not sure about something or if you want guidance like pray to me and i will guide you know i will guide people the crime repeatedly says that if God chooses to guide someone, then no one can, you know, lead them astray. Or if he doesn't guide someone, then no, there is no one who can guide them. Um, so pray to God, pray for guidance, be, be a seeker, right? To quote your podcast, like be, be a seeker and look openly with an honest heart. And, you know, that's the recipe for, for kind of finding the truth. Right. And I think I'm not going to sit here and say that you know, Ahmadiyya Islam is the only one truth religion. Everyone should follow it. Even if that is something I believe, I think, all of us have to do that, go on a journey. And all of our viewpoints and our starting points are different. Right? When I was looking at what Jesus has said and trying to think, is he, is he the son of God? Is there something here? My starting point was different. You know, I have an initial starting point and a bias that is going to be different to other people as well. 
So we have to try and put that bias to one side, very difficult. We have to try and be objective, really hard as well. And then we have to try and look through, you know, are there prophecies? Are there signs? Are there elements that basically lead me to believe this to be, you know, the truth? Very, very briefly from an Ahmadiyya Muslim point of view, um, I look at the claims of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community. Now, obviously, first of all, I was born into this faith, but as a rebellious teenager, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the way teenagers are. That, you know, we try and question everything. I remember in my late teenage years, early 20s, I was going through the basics of, you know, what the faith taught. And it would have been in keeping with my character, let's say, <laughs> to kind of go, oh, I've read this and I've worked this out and I'm not going to believe in this. I'm going to believe in something different. Um, but through my own analysis and, 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 you know, examination of the sources and from what I could see, I saw, I saw the evidence of what I just spoke about. I saw a divine, I saw a prophecy from the time of Prophet Muhammad that was being fulfilled today in someone coming and making this claim. I read the books of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community. He wrote over 70 books. I read and, and read through them. I read the revelation that he had received. And I looked firstly, whether it was internally consistent. Was it contradictory? When I found it internally consistent, I looked at it versus the Quran. Is it in line with that? And I looked at it in line with my understanding of the world. Does it make sense? And then also then I looked at the fruits, his fruits, his community that exists today. You know, what does that community look like? And, you know, despite all of the persecution that the Ahmadiyya community faces, despite us being a minority where, you know, whose beliefs go against arguably the orthodox beliefs of the whole Christian world and most of the Muslim world, yet despite that, the community is flourishing. There were things that I looked at personally. And then also, look, let's not try and be too, what's the word? academic about this right belief is a matter of the heart and the soul so you have to also go on you know how do you feel when you go amongst these religious gatherings when you meet people when i meet the the caliph of the community the, the uh, leader or when i see him giving a speech is that someone who i believe is a man of god is that someone that i is preaching something that i can agree with and i want to be part of so i think all of those are, are things that have led me uh, to be very comfortable in the Ahmadiyya Muslim belief. And I think all of those are, are the basic building blocks that everyone should kind of look at when they're trying to understand, you know, what, what is really going on out there uh, and, you know, in this, in this amazing mystery that is life. So awesome. Well said. So yeah, I, that covers it in terms of the, the list of questions. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Um, actually, I should say, is there anything else that you think I've missed or that you think is important to say for the audience or? No, thank you so much for having me. I realized that the, the, a lot of what I've talked about will be kind of difficult to hear, will be uncomfortable. And, you know, there's, there's, I've tried to be as respectful as I can on, the, on what I've said. You know, I'm expressing my viewpoints and, and now belief. And I understand that, you know, there are a lot of different responses. Um, and so, um, yeah, I hope the, the audience takes my words in the right spirit. And I'm happy to have any, you know, if there are follow up questions and you know, if Dale, if there's things you want me to talk about in future, things that may come out of this, I'd, I'd love to talk to you again. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. And, and thanks to you for being, you know, you opening up and bringing me on, someone who's got very different beliefs to yourself and, and giving me the time to share my viewpoint. I really, I've really enjoyed that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think it's important. I trust my audience. They're critical thinkers. They don't always agree with me either, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, it's great to get a different perspective. I've appreciated hearing your take on the shroud evidence and stuff and seeing where we have similarities versus differences. So yeah, you're, you're welcome on the show anytime for any topic you want. So cool, thanks a lot. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, well, that's it. So just so the audience knows next week, um, I'm going to be having another show, Theo Geeks podcast, 
on the complementarian versus egalitarian debate. Can, can women be ministers in the church? And we're going to be looking at some of Paul's passages on that front. So yeah, with that said, uh, thanks again to Arif and have a great day. You too. Thank you very much.